Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to our Mandalorian recap. <laughs> it's been so long. Oh, my gosh. It's been, it's February, the end of February, <laughs> and we are recording uh, our recap and analysis of Chapter 7 and Chapter 8 of The Mandalorian, which came out in december yeah i'm sorry guys you know that it was just a really busy time and yeah when the rise of skywalker came out it was it was just we needed a little bit of a break and i'm actually really thankful for it because i caitlin and i both are going into this episode having just binge watched the entire series Mm -hmm. so i i do kind of feel like we're coming into it with like fresh. fresh eyes. Yeah. With with like a newfound understanding of where things started and where things ended and in a different way than I think we would have if we were week to week discussing seven and eight. And for that I'm 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 really thankful. But I do feel bad and it has been totally weighing on me on my shoulders. I feel like that we hadn't recorded this because truthfully, The Mandalorian was is my favorite piece of Star Wars canon that came out of twenty nineteen. And I sincerely love this show. And I just want to give it as much attention as it deserves because I really, I really love it. And I don't know about you, Kaylin, but I, I, I just have to apologize for both of us that it's February. We're recording this on February twenty fourth right now. The Project Luminous announcement has not happened yet <laughs> in this timeline. Oh my god! And, <laughs> and I think that it's, uh, it feels like a really long time since Mandalorian was on TV, and I just. Honestly, I want to I want to like transport myself back to the time where this was airy week to week also because it was honestly such a happy time waking up early and I think we're experiencing it right now with the Clone Wars again, but it's it, it's different. I think that with the Mandalorian though, it really felt like the world was totally united around Baby Yoda and <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um I feel like I got to I'm I'm sorry that it took us so long, but I also we needed that time to reflect and take a little bit of a break after Rise of Skywalker came out. I know I feel like it was forever before we actually recorded again mm-hmm. after Rise of Skywalker came out. But I think it's um it's good that we weren't recording Mandalorian in that particular time period. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, finishing up Resistance, of course, and then Clone Wars coming back. We had our birthday. You know, we were busy. We had, we, there were, there was a lot going on. And honestly, I mean, the amount that we were recording up until Rise of Skywalker <laughs> came out, I mean, I I don't want to say we were burned out, but we were definitely tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we enjoyed all of it. Don't get me wrong, but we were tired. <laughs> Uh, so we just like we had like a couple weeks of hibernation at the start of the year and um, I'm really glad that we are covering it now Uh, you know a bit of a day late and a dollar short but with just as much enthusiasm and love as uh, we had back in December when it was first airing and honestly I mean if you guys listen to the show you know how we felt about Rise of Skywalker and getting to see Chapter 8 Redemption on December 27th so uh, exactly a week after Rise of Skywalker came out I honestly didn't know if I could watch it (laughs) and then I did and I was like oh my god this is this is Star Wars like this is it 
it was so good that it reminded me it like just brought some more like Star Wars joy back into my heart when I really needed it most and uh, the Mandalorian is so incredibly special and you're right there was just something about those like cold winter mornings and everyone is watching it and and you know we're going into the holiday season and it really was just so fun um, that time period uh, with the beginning of the Mandalorian and everyone you know loving baby Yoda and what was the memes the, the memes. Me- the memes were just <laughs> out of control. <laughs> it was great. It was so good. But I'm excited to be talking about it now, um, even if it is a little late. And like Charlotte said earlier, we both binge watched the entire series again this weekend. I watched it all in a day. It was fabulous. And Charlotte, yours was over like a two-day period. Yeah. And I uh, yeah, this show, I remember for me, I think The Mandalorian was kind of not hard, but um, sometimes the like week to week felt it made it feel more just disjointed for me. And I remember like through our whole like week to week analysis of it, I was like, you know, I'm really looking forward to like coming back and watching this all together. I really feel like it's going to flow better for me personally. And it 100 percent did. And <laughs> you knew yourself and I you knew, were right. I, knew I, I was I was very right. Yay for me. <laughs> and it, it really did. Like, I remember like Sanctuary, right? Just stands out so much in this lineup. And I remember when we watched it, I was like, I think I was like kind of 50-50 on Sanctuary and my overall feelings about it because I loved the like symbols of it and um, the story that was being told and the character beats in it. But it did just feel so disjointed from where we had been and, and where I thought we were going. And But then watching it one through eight, I was like, this, this is what I needed. Like at this juncture in this eight-part story, this reprieve, this sanctuary visually and kind of tonally was exactly what I needed. And it just, it flowed, it flowed so much better for me. And I just, I really had such a good time rewatching it. And the, the sadness hits a lot harder. (laughs) It really does. It really does. And like Quill and IG-1111, uh, IG-1111, IG-11, <laughs> make a wish, 11-11, make a wish, Benzel lives. <laughs> that's, I feel like that's kind of dating myself because don't you remember like in middle school, it was always, everyone was like, it's 11-11, make a wish, or it's one, it's 12-34, it's one, two, three, four, make a wish. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, sometimes I still do it, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, no, same. Um <laughs> But IG-11 and Quill, it was, oh, man, that first episode, I was like, oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, I it hurt so much. I think rewatching it, I was surprised. I tweeted about this, too, so I apologize if you, if you follow me and you saw this. But I was really surprised by how emotional I got hearing the music in episodes one and two and some of those, like, long shots. It was just... I didn't realize really how much of an emotional attachment I had formed to the show until I revisited it. And I was like, wow, this is I'm experiencing some form of nostalgia right now. And the show just came out. And I think that there's something that's so special about that where I was like moved to tears by some of the moments with the music and like the sunsets, the walking. I was like, wow, I didn't expect this to happen right now when I'm rewatching it. But it really did remind me that this show set up these 
kind of interpersonal relationships that feel so human and real, despite it being a masked, a masked hero, I suppose, and a, a Yoda baby. It's just, I don't know how, Yoda but in an, an Ugna and everything. I think that it's, it's, I'm so surprised by my emotional attachment to it. And like you say, with Quill and the the tears that happened when I saw IG-11 again and him. And I was just like, oh my God, the sacrifice that happens later means so much more knowing knowing that. And I think that's like one of the wonderful things about rewatching a series or rewatching Star Wars in general is understanding the, the, the trajectory of where everything is going. And so you can look back and for some reason with Star Wars, because Star Wars is tragedy, <laughs> looking back, it hurts and it in a in a kind of a beautiful way and i definitely got that with the mandalorian yeah i i completely did too it just it seemed it's and maybe it was because of this almost like nostalgic factor that you talk about which it's weird thinking about it being nostalgic when it came out um 2 months ago <laughs> but yeah. uh i don't know it just it seemed like more beautiful the story I was really struck by just how much of a storybook it felt like Mm -hmm. watching it this time all the way through like literally back to back it really did from the dialogue and the sets and like the 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 type of like one-off adventures they were having it felt so much more like a storybook like this fairy tale western and I don't know I really enjoyed it and I, I think that like some of that stuff some of that stuff didn't resonate with me the first time I watched it, honestly. I wasn't sure how I felt about some of the pacing, but seeing it all together, it really it it flowed a lot better for me. I think too because I knew it was coming and I knew that I was already invested in these characters as well. Mm. So I was like picking up on these subtleties more. I mean, let me just be clear, I was always a hundred percent invested in Baby Yoda. How could you not be? <laughs> um and I, and I loved. I mean, I lo- actually I love all the characters in the Mandalorian. Yeah, so do I. When you just said that, I was like, wow. Yeah, I there's just no mean- character. Oh, except for oof. oof. <laughs> Never mind. There's a character. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's one. There's one. I mean, our main characters. Yeah. Yes. There's there's actually two, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Both from the same episode. Yes. I I love I love all of the main characters a lot. I think I think the characters are the strongest part of the Mandalorian. So I think in this watch through, I appreciated the story a lot more, and it really it did really feel like kind of stepping. I almost felt like you know like when Sleeping Beauty opens and you open with the bejeweled book and you kind of sink into the story. That's mm-hmm. how I felt watching this the Mandalorian this time around. I was really just kind of sinking into this into this world where I knew I recognized it, but it was different. And I don't know. I don't really know how to describe it. It did just feel – it felt more fairy tale to me. It felt more felt more like a story. And uh, I don't know. I really liked that this time around. Yeah. I think I was thinking a lot this, this rewatch. I was thinking a lot about the tone of the show and how it – it balances somehow between that goofy goodness that is in Star Wars with this kind of definitely Emmy and Golden Globe worthy action and visuals in a different way than I think we've seen in Star Wars before or just 
I something I'm unfamiliar with with Star Wars television. And I was thinking about how this this show has such a huge cultural footprint right now and how it really does represent something different in the marketplace where it's I think that it, it would be labeled as a family show. I don't have kids and I don't know, but I do think that there's this interesting balance about like this show is awesome. It has amazing special effects. It has awesome action um, that's often brutal sometimes. And I I just feel like but also it has this like this tone of this dad and a baby and these aliens and you know the 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 dad who's masked like he's you know he's really stubborn and he stumbles and uh he struggles and I think that there's all these things that, that it's just or even the first episode when you watch it and you have the the guy playing the flute and it's just there's this wonderful goofiness about it <laughs> I forgot that, how much I love him <laughs> me too and there's there, you know what I mean though is that there's mm-hmm. this it's not it's this show is not a Game of Thrones but I no. think in the space it acts like a Game of Thrones like I think that it acts like oh every everyone's watching the Mandalorian right it yeah. feels like it, it feels important and it feels like on that level but it's that goofy Star Wars that I I don't think the movies, at least I don't think the sequel trilogy has this kind of goofiness. I don't feel that. This feels like a completely different tone to me or even Rogue One or Solo. It feels different, but it feels inherently Star Wars. It has that Star Wars feeling in this way that I just never really expected. Yeah, yeah. I think I think too just getting used to a long format live action story is like so strange to say that we're not used to that. <laughs> um, because even though we have the Skywalker saga, those were so far apart. And even though we watch them as one now, they are split up into these, into these trilogies where we're focusing on a different set of characters. And even then they're all, they all top out at five, six hours altogether, which is we have more with the Mandalorian and it's smaller scale. So we're getting more dense moments, I think, with our characters more often in the Mandalorian. I don't know. I think it's for me, it was like, wow, like what is what is this? <laughs> I think I think like the whole first season, I was like, what is the Mandalorian? Like, wh- what is is this a because a couple of the episodes, I remember we were like, this feels exactly how a plot would work in like Rebels, yeah. <laughs> you know? And I was like, what is this? And then you would have these really deep moments. And then we get to the end, like with Reckoning and um, Redemption. And I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are these emotions that I'm feeling? But then you're right. You have things like the blue flute guy. And <laughs> so good. <laughs> what is and then the, the, the prisoner who's talking about... Uh... How evacuating he himself he hasn't yeah he hasn't evacuated himself since the solstice like, i was like what in the in the first humor? 10 minutes of your your groundbreaking series bathroom humor oh my gosh <laughs> you know but <laughs> it's just <laughs> it is kind of it's, it's kind of strange to think about like what the secret sauce of the mandalorian is and i think it is just this whole kind of collaboration of all these pieces the you know the cutting edge technology the music which i mean that was the very first thing you and i picked up on when we were at the mandalorian panel last year at celebration the music stood out mm-hmm. i think everyone came out of that panel talking about 
how the music sounded. And I remember as we were getting closer and closer to the Mandalorian, I just kept anticipating hearing that music again because those trailers weren't really online. And mm-hmm. so there was nowhere to hear. It. And all I could do was remember vaguely what I thought I heard in a 30 second clip, you know, and uh-huh. hearing it again and just how different it did sound and how it is so iconic now to the Mandalorian. It's, I don't know, I, I love it. I love it. I love this show. I'm so excited for season two um, coming up in the fall, I suppose. And <laughs> October is the word on the street. October is what they're saying on the streets. <laughs> I think Bob Iger actually said that. So <laughs> if it's really the word on the street, as much as it's the CEO of the Walt Disney Company saying that. <laughs> it's the word on the shareholders call. Yeah, exactly. You're actually obligated to tell the truth. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just see Bob Iger walking down the streets going October. October. He only the had coming out. He's like putting flyers on people's windshields. Prepare your memes. <laughs> Get ready. You see him walking around in like a robe and like a baby Yoda on his back. <laughs> He would. Handing out flyers. <laughs> no, he wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> I think that, to be honest, I think the people at Disney, though, are so proud of The Mandalorian, which is also feels really good. It feels... I just want to take a step back, though, and say that it really does feel good to have basically the world kind of rallying around how good The Mandalorian is. And I love that feeling. I love the feeling of good Star Wars. Yes. And like Star Wars that resonates with all types of people, casual fans, really deep fans and um, everyone around the world and uh, young people, old people. I, I just I love it. And I, I felt this way. I was in Disney World last week and they had Mandalorian, more Mandalorian merch than sequel trilogy merch. And I think that says everything, honestly. And to the point where I saw more Mandalorian t-shirts I had never seen this artwork before it's like people went on like tea public and bought this kind of stuff my my mom was like there's Mandalorian stuff everywhere and it wasn't necessarily what Disney was putting out it was like people had brought their Mandalorian merch and you know I'm like really impressed by that and (laughs) to the point where I I didn't buy anything when I was in Disney last week or it was in went to Galaxy's Edge and everything I only bought a baby Yoda hat. Like that's the only thing I bought that whole weekend. And which again is strange for me. I, I, I don't know. I, it's, I'm like so in love with the show and I feel like the world is too. And it feels really good. Yeah. There's something really nice just about everyone agreeing that it's good. <laughs> yeah. And, and not, not to say if, if you're listening to this right now and you're on the fence of the Mandalorian, I totally get that. I just think that there's something really nice about it being like the subject on so many people's lips you know yeah, what well, I mean I think that I think the majority of people really like it and again yeah whether if you if you don't that's totally okay too but I think coming out of something like the prequel trilogy like Rebels like Resistance like this The Last Jedi and Tross which just have very varying opinions across the board and to have something like The Mandalorian that doesn't seem as fraught with tension online or out in the world like those other titles do sometimes, then it, it is just really nice. It's like, 
I know when people are talking about the Mandalorian at work, I can partake in that conversation and it will be okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because, well, I say that, but today I had a conversation about the Mandalorian and it turned into a prequel conversation and that <laughs> took a turn and I had to get on my soapbox and it was not great. <laughs> but it was great. <laughs> it was great. It was a little awkward, but it was good. <laughs> Always the prequel conversations are, but in the the end, it's worth it. Yeah. And then (laughs) just spread the gospel. (laughs) People who don't know how much I love Star Wars. (laughs) I love that when you like reveal the tip of the iceberg and then it's like, whoa, she's really deep. (laughs) Well, it's so funny. I was telling Charlotte earlier, so we were at a company lunch today and um, I was sitting next to my boss and I have a new job. So I've only been here six weeks. And he's talking – they've been talking about The Mandalorian and then they, we moved into talking about um, – oh, because they were they were all seven-year-old little boys when A New Hope came out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that is a fantastic experience. They were talking about how much the original trilogy, like, really, you know, like, blew their minds, you know. And, and of course, that's really good. And then they're like, oh, yeah, but, like, the other ones weren't as good. And I'm sitting there like <sighs> – and then <laughs> – we started talking about, you know, the Phantom Menace, the Jar Jar Binks, and that, you know, was just, like, not great. And I was like, well, <clears throat> well, tap the microphone. This is what you don't know about the Phantom Menace and about Jar Jar Binks and, and the digital technology revolution that was started by Jar Jar Binks and George Lucas. And if you like any of your movies today, you should thank your lucky stars that the Phantom Menace exists. And furthermore, it's a good story in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> like, <laughs> through this whole thing. And we were talking about how Jar Jar Binks was, like, motion capture and stuff like that. And like oh I didn't know that and um my boss was like well I wonder if like Jim Henson was still alive like if they would do puppets if they would have done puppets for for like the for the Phantom Menace and I was like Jim Henson and he was like yeah yeah yeah." and I was like no I'm sorry that was Frank Oz (laughs) (laughs) and they did do puppets by the way but (laughs) (laughs) but but like you're fine I don't mean to correct you but you're fine Yeah. Uh, they were all looking at me. It's like, uh, anyway, the Mandalorian is great. <laughs> Sorry. Just thinking. I feel like I always need to share my. Charlotte and I have this thing that happens whenever we're at like a convention or honestly, anytime we're together, like traveling, we always end up in Ubers where we talk about Star Wars. And without fail, our Uber drivers are always like, well, I hate the prequel trilogy. <laughs> Yeah, it's never. Or I hated the last Jedi. Yeah, that also it, has happened. It's never not happened to us, and we both we. It's like, oh, again, tap the microphone. Let me get on my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, it's not our job to convince or you know convince anyone to change their opinion at all. It's just sometimes I think that people adopt this opinion because they think it's the conventional one, but. Exactly. And, and one of the guys at lunch who had seen Star Wars when it first came out in 77 was like, yeah, I only saw Revenge of the Sith once. And I was like, well, sir, there is your problem. <laughs> you need to – like, he was like, oh, I haven't seen it since it was in theaters. He was like, because I didn't really like it or like it wasn't as good. And I was like, no, Revenge of the Sith is like – it's one of the best ones. And they were all like, mm-hmm. what? Yes. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. 
Yep. True. True. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think that, and that's kind of what, that's to make a very long story, not so short. That's kind of what we're getting at here is the fact that like rewatching the Mandalorian in this chunk like this, it was so beneficial because some of the critiques that I had of it kind of faded away or the things that I loved more were emphasized more in this rewatch and things that I didn't notice before I noticed this time and getting to see the whole story at once. Like I said, I really did kind of feel like I was just sinking into the Mandalorian as as a show, as a storybook, as a as a chapter, and like the fact that I've always loved the fact that they call it chapters, um, mm-hmm. the episodes. I've always that's been that's like weirdly one of my favorite parts about it. I love calling it like chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. I think there's something really magical about that, and I don't know. It was it was really good. So uh, if you haven't watched it all the way through in one single sitting because you have nothing else to do, I highly recommend it. It's really good. And if there's not all- enough Star Wars out right now. Yeah, there's not enough. You should rewatch The Mandalorian. Um, I do think you should rewatch The Mandalorian. Put it at the top of your rewatch and Star Wars priority list because it's definitely worth it. And it's a good story. And rewatching it now, I was my head was just spinning with things that were going to come in season two and even though chapter eight was like this breath of fresh air after the rise of Skywalker for me I still like it was hard to like think of what was coming next and I know that sounds really dramatic but if you're a big Star Wars fan depending on what your feelings about Rise of Skywalker were I think you can understand that like being really invested in something and if it didn't live up to your hype it's kind of like oh what am I doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and December 27th w- felt like that a little bit. So I, I don't think I like speculated too far about what season two could look like at that time. And then rewatching it all now, now I was like, oh, okay, here's where we can go. Here's what I would like to see. Let me let me start the gears turning because you guys know that Charlotte and I love speculation. That's our favorite part of Star Wars. And not only was trust not what we thought it was going to be but it's it's closing a chapter of speculation in our like podcasting lives and that's that was sad in and of itself no matter what the movie ended up being because we love doing that and now getting like the Mandalorian coming we get to start doing that again for season two and I really really can't wait for that and they gave us a great cliffhanger which I'm sure we'll get to when we talk about it but it really, oh my God, it's so good. And I just, I can't wait for Celebration when they tease season two. I, oh my God, it's going to be so good. <laughs> I can't wait. Um, well, we haven't really introed that we're going to be talking about chapter seven and chapter eight. Chapter seven is called The Reckoning. It was directed by Deborah Chow. Woohoo. Woo. It was written by John Favreau and it came out December 18th. Who can forget them moving this up to Wednesday instead of Friday <laughs> because of the Rise of Skywalker release? I remember being like, wow, that is so crazy that something that happens in this episode is going to directly feed into the Rise of Skywalker and imagine how right we were. (laughs) And then also, like watching it on that Wednesday, I was like levitating. It was insane. Um, And then chapter eight uh, called Redemption, which, man, that title, guys. Um, it was directed by Taika Waititi. Uh, it was written by John Favreau as well. It came out December 27th, as we've talked about. Um, both these episodes to me are kind of in competition for, I can't, de- I really can't decide which chapter is my favorite. I think three is my favorite. The other episode directed by Deborah Chow, because mm-hmm. I think that really 
while the first two episodes really did, I was sold, obviously. Chapter three, like, I think is a turning point for most people about, like, wow, this show really can get going. And I think the lens in which Deborah Chow told the story through just worked perfectly for me. The pacing was so perfect. And I don't know. It was it was like perfect TV. But I also think chapter seven and chapter eight are also perfect TV. <laughs> it, it, they, <laughs> they both go together, together so, so well. well. Yeah. yeah, they do. So I'm happy that we're talking about them together. And I think I was in the camp of slightly nervous that Taika Watiti's distinct style and brand of humor wasn't necessarily going to fit into Star Wars. Um, dis- I, even though I was excited to see his spin on it, um, I understood that sort of trepidation from a lot of people. And I was curious how that was going to go. And I was I was just like kind of not really sure how he stood on it. I was just going to give him a chance, right? And I think it was perfect. Uh, even the humor in the beginning <laughs> was a lot with the punching of the Baby Yoda, but I think it was... Uh, <laughs> It was okay. And I really do think that understanding Taika's style of balancing this like joyful humor, which I think definitely happens. Like, I'm specifically thinking about when Baby Yoda is strapped to IG 11 and there's the, that amazing scene where they're going through the town. And oh my God, that, that scene is like so exhilarating, you know? Anyway, so that sort of excitement and fun and joy that you can find in a movie balanced with this sadness and sacrifice. And I think that you get that in Redemption um, so much. And I think that was that's Taika's brand and it totally worked for yeah. me at least. Yeah. I Chapter 8 is – you're right. It's like perfect to be – when I think about The Mandalorian, I think about Deborah Chow's episodes and Taika's episode i think i think my first thought is honestly chapter three i just i don't think i'll ever forget watching it and just being so exhilarated by what Mm -hmm. i was seeing and thinking it was beautifully shot and i was totally captivated by the story that was going on the fact that it was called the sin oh my god it was just amazing and i think whenever someone says the mandalorian i think i immediately think of the scene at the end with the mandalorian and baby yoda on that transport with like the other mandalorians fighting and they're like the blaster shots are going off around them and it is just this like moment of what are we gonna do and I love that scene so much. I think I remember watching and thinking, what are they going to do? And I was just on the edge of my seat. And then I find myself then, then my next thought is always the end of the story uh, of this season anyway, when we're, you know, they're, it's like, it's classic storytelling. They're just, they're, they're stuck in this building and they got to get out (laughs) Mm -hmm. and just watching them all go through various solutions and panic and uh, conversations with each other. It's just, while there's this ticking time bomb, it just, it worked so well. And it's something that we've seen in so many different iterations of stories, but getting to have it in this kind of setting with Star Wars and Mandalorian and Baby Yoda and the fire and IG-11. The fire. <laughs> <laughs> it just, and, and the, the seeds that are dropped in those two episodes too are just mm, chef's kiss. They're so good. I just, you could chew on those, those lines for the next eight months and we are will basi- be. We basically are. <laughs> we will be. So I think they did their job right yeah (laughs) and it was it was just great um if there's anything i could say about the mandalorian negatively it's that i wish there was more behind the scenes content and you and i were talking about this before we hopped on to record 
card and where is it? <laughs> I want There's it. just that one video. One There's video. One video. I want it. I just, I need so much more from this behind the scenes <laughs> of the show. I need it. I know so- it exists. Why is there not, why have we not gotten a featurette yet of freaking Baby Yoda and him on set? <laughs> I just, I don't get it. <laughs> 10 million views on on youtube immediately <laughs> immediately yeah. i just i don't understand why it doesn't like bringing baby yoda to life <laughs> that's the title <laughs> the balance between puppeteering and cgi i want to yeah. know it practical technological what do we do a ba- <laughs> practical technological a child a child. The thing child. is, is that the virtual production video, if you guys haven't seen it, I'll link it in the show notes um, where it's a four minute long video where ILM kind of goes through this. The fact that something that's so cool about the Mandalorian is that they have virtual sets, which is something that was experimented with really in solo. I think that was the first place that I remember seeing it where they had the light speed happening in the real life uh, cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. So the light speed action was happening right outside of the window and they were able to change the sets. And I think that was if I'm not an expert, obviously, but I think that was the first iteration. But in The Mandalorian, they have basically a full digital set, which kind of redefines exactly how Star Wars looks in terms of uh, acting. I think that if you think about the prequels, something that people think about often is how Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen and Ewan McGregor had to act with basically 95% green screen. And when you look at the behind the scenes videos, it's all green screen, blue screen, whatever. But with The Mandalorian, I think, and I I have to back backspace a little bit because I think that that was an acting challenge that the actors were willing to do and they were excited about. But there's a certain amount of pretend that has to go into that, that I think is... Definitely, like, I think acting is definitely helped by physical objects and physicality. Um, I'm not, again, not an expert, but that's just my general understanding. And I think that that was experimented with really with The Mandalorian, where they had a few pieces of physical props, like the ships and uh, the Razor Crest exteriors. But really, The Mandalorian and the characters are all standing in essentially a circular dome where they could project LEDs of the the sets all around them. So the exteriors, the sunsets. And in the video, they talk about how they could have a 10-hour sunset. And I don't I don't know why this whole thing just like completely blows my mind. But I we watched the video and I don't know about you, Caitlin, but I was like, what am I even looking at? Am I looking at a real set or am I look like am I looking at them on location or are they seriously in a soundstage in Burbank or wherever they 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 film in California? It's shocking and it's so it's also just so thrilling to see Star Wars again continuously push the boundaries of technology. I I think this is maybe the only type of virtual set that exists uh in the world. Um at least on this scale. And again, it's just very, very exciting to see this sort of innovation happening within Lucasfilm and ILM. Yeah, I feel like it's not something we got to hear enough about with what they were doing, what I assumed they were doing in the sequel trilogy. Because you're right, when we first heard about, because they talked about this at the panel at The Mandalorian last year. And when they talked about it, I I envisioned it so much smaller than what it actually was when you see it in the the BTS video and it's I think I thought that it was just like when they filmed it on the green screen then it would automatically populate 
in like in a in like a dailies camera where they watch the playback that's the word when they watch the playback and the set is there not that it would actually be on the screens behind the actors and I feel like I feel like this has probably been done because they said the company they use was ILM and game engineer game box yeah something like I think that. it probably works on in gaming yeah when they do uh like <laughs> games like that <laughs> like when they do gaming <laughs> when they yeah, I want to say RPG, but that's not it. That's not it. <laughs> you guys, you guys know what I mean. <laughs> but I feel like the, the, there probably have been like instances of it. But you're right. I think the difference here is just the sheer scale of it, and just doing it so much and doing it for something that is live action as opposed to for because you know, like it, like even in like Jedi Fallen Order and stuff, they have actors that are doing the mocap suits and doing like the acting out all the scenes and stuff. So I feel like there are probably instances where it's used in situations like that. But then it's ultimately translated into a digital, like not live action format, or it's it's made to not look live action. Whereas this is so much different. It's bigger sets, and it just I don't know. I was really amazed watching it, and I I, I understand the concept of it, but even trying to explain it back to you or to our listeners, no, I'm like. Oh. Oh, <laughs> it's it's there. They like Charlotte said. It's like they are in this like dome screen, and the fact that they can change it and move it, and the lighting from the screen is the real time lighting on the character on the actors. It's just it's it's really incredible. And that's what's so crazy is yeah. the idea that they can reflect, which I think is so important in a show like The Mandalorian, where your your character has a shiny armor that reflects on every surface. Yeah. Where they're able yeah. to reflect certain settings and lighting and everything off the helmet, which especially in uh chapter seven and eight, specifically eight, there's this amazing shot of the fire that baby Yoda kind of mm. reflects off the T of the helmet. Oh my God, it is a beautiful shot. And I was just thinking like, was that real? <laughs> Were they able to project that? And I think that is just an astounding achievement. I think I would give basically anything to stand on this set. Oh, yes. <laughs> For a lot of casual people. blood sacrifice. <laughs> casual blood sacrifice to stand on the side of the Mandalorian? Absolutely. I'd yeah. casual blood sacrifice you in an instant. Oh my god, okay. <laughs> but only Ouch. if we could both go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, true. Anyway, the, the production of this show is next level and I again, this is that thing, I mean, Star Wars, when people talk about like the story of Star Wars, it, it you have to talk about the development of the technology that goes along with it. These things are intrinsically linked. They go in tandem with the success of Star Wars for whatever era you're talking about, except for the sequel trilogy. <laughs> no, not except for the sequel it's trilogy. It's not except the either. sequel trilogy. There's just a lot we actually don't know about the production of the sequel trilogy. So I feel like there are things in there that were really revolutionary um, and we're really pushing the envelope forward. I think just the sheer pace of what Disney was doing with Star Wars in the sequel trilogy era, like the amounts of content, like large scale content they were creating is in a way a technology innovation, <laughs> just the fact that yeah. they were doing it so quickly. Um, and there is a lot we don't know. But when we're what, from what we do know, looking at like the original trilogy, the second trilogy, the animated animation department, and now the Mandalorian, these things, the stories are all in conversation with each other, and so is the technology. And I think that sometimes people 
like the, the example I was talking about before with like my coworkers and stuff, it's not that they don't care. They just don't know. But that is such an integral part of the success of Star Wars and how it keeps going and, and why it keeps inspiring people both in front of the camera and behind it and like as a story uh, that's being told. I don't know. It's just – we like talking about it and we don't know what we're talking about. And very true. <laughs> but there is just something, there's something really great. And it's one of those things that I know that George Lucas would just be all over. I'm sure he was there. I like, think he is. That's yeah, why he's that's on the set. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really exciting. Um, Oh, I feel like I held my breath in for that whole like minute that I was <laughs> talking. Okay, <It's> exciting. <laughs> I love it. Technology. Yeah. Me, like my my phone's out of storage and I've had it for four years, and I'm like, God, ah, new technology. <laughs> I love it so much. But okay, let's let's start actually talking about these episodes because we've been here now for you know 45 minutes it's fine <laughs> it's fine okay first things first that we always talk about with these episodes are the titles <laughs> and, yes uh chapter seven is the reckoning and chapter eight is redemption with no the, the. Oh, man between sanctuary it still bothered me in sanctuary and in redemption i still want the the but it's fine we'll blow right past it again <laughs> i actually think i have something to say about that oh boy it's interesting disagree with me how it goes the Mandalorian. Okay, I, I honestly don't remember each episode, but it goes the the no I ha- the. I have them. The the. Oh wait, it's it the goes, the the no no. What? Okay, hold on. Wait, I no 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 me. no 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 no. It goes. It's, I'm right. It's, it's chapters four and eight that don't have the the. Yeah, so it basically goes mid- every every fourth. Well, it's the mid season and the finale. Yeah, and I don't mind that. I think that is if there's a established pattern. <laughs> <laughs> which we can talk about <laughs> when it comes we're, to season two. We're putting so many okay. rules I also, on this. I, I also can't hate the title Redemption. I just can't. I, I really can't. can't. I don't. I just, why can it be the Redemption? Because I think it, it refers to everyone. Yeah. In redemption a can be collective. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's go through the, the titles that have happened. Because I think the title, uh, no, no the withstanding, the titles have been really great. I love how they're one word. They, again, they set this ominous tone for the story, making it a story, calling it chapter. It just, this is very intentional and it works really well for, for what we're seeing on screen. So we have chapter one, the Mandalorian, chapter two, the child, chapter three, the sin, chapter four, sanctuary, chapter five, the gunslinger, chapter six, the prisoner, chapter seven, the reckoning, and chapter eight, redemption. And so the mid-season finale and the finale do not have the the. If it becomes an established pattern, I guess I can be okay with it in season two. (laughs) Um, I am glad that it wasn't just the reckoning. I don't know. I actually have no idea. I have no idea how I feel. Um, All I know is that there's not a the and the other ones have them. I think the title, The Reckoning, is really interesting. And just like I think with these titles, I'm not quite sure exactly. I, I don't, I think that they often with these titles, they can refer to multiple different people and different characters. I even would go as far to say that the pilot episode the mandalorian as it is called now perhaps even the mandalorian doesn't just refer to din but instead also refers to the child as we find out later in in the future i think that there's like 
there's a lot of double meaning happening, which is something that I think Star Wars titles do quite well, uh, especially things like The Phantom Menace and, um, I don't know, Attack of the Clones, Avengers, all these things, right? It, it, you can glean so much from the titles because they have multiple meanings. And I think the same is true for these titles. But specifically with The Reckoning, I think the, the word reckoning means a person's judgment, the action of calculating something. And I'm still like, I'm not, what do you, what do you think it means, Caitlin? What does it mean to you? I really like the word reckoning. I think it's not a word that we hear very often anymore. And again, it just kind of goes into this idea of like, this is an old story that's been told before and maybe it's just now reaching your ears kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. I really like it. I think it, it elicits a lot of thoughts, like you said, about like judgment or, accounting like a settlement it's it's the end like we're coming to like it's it's part of the process Mm -hmm. and it it feels very ominous you know because some of the other ones they feel um you know like the gunslinger feels kind of fun like an adventure and then you know sanctuary has a very calming kind of feel to it but the reckoning it really does feel like the the second to last episode you know, like we're cu- we're building up to the end and everything is going to come to this crisis point. And the reckoning is what they choose to do with the situation that's presented before them. And the fact that they're all, all of the people in that episode kind of have questionable morals or where are they going to fall on this? Like grief, for example, where do his loyalties really lie? And when push comes to shove, what is Kara going to do? And I, I really liked Kara in this in these episodes because I feel like we kind of see her kind of unravel a bit too in these episodes. And what is she going to do in the end? And even like Din going against IG-11, that's a source of tension. Like all of these things, there's a lot of friction. And I think Reckoning really, it works with that Western kind of vibe too. I just, I think this is probably my favorite title, I think, aside mm-hmm. from The Sin. And again, that's such a great episode too. <laughs> but I think Reckoning, it's such a unique word choice, I think. And I really liked it. Yeah, I agree. I think that the person that I think of the most when I think of Reckoning with the definition of a person's judgment, I think about Grief Karga and how he was going to basically double cross uh, the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda and Kara. And Instead, he gets injured, and the act of healing from Baby Yoda in this episode really has him turn his heart. And I think that, like, seeing that sort of compassion is enough to change. And it was, it's almost like (laughs) those pterodactyl things that attacked him, I, or the dragons, or whatever. I think that it's almost like did he was he getting what was coming to him did he need this was his moment this was when he had to decide i think or when baby yoda really had to help and he was going to decide whether he would accept that help because even in the beginning of this episode we see baby yoda kind of uh try to force choke Kara when they're they're uh arm wrestling which i think was a crazy moment where you realize whoa this child has a lot of power and he's really trying to protect his dad which i think is both adorable and scary because you just don't really know this what he can do i think we know so much about the force because of knowing about star wars and there's all these different parts and that was definitely the child kind of tapping into the dark side 
And so you start off the episode with that moment, but then by the end you get this compassion, like purely compassionate moment where he's able to heal grief. And um, that's when he has the change of heart. Yeah, I think the moment with grief is such an interesting one because I remember being surprised when he said that he had a change of heart. And I found myself wondering, can I buy this? Can I believe this long term, I think? And I still think that we can question grief and I still think he's going to act in his best interest. But I think he, you know, when you compare him to the moth, uh, Gideon, and oh my God, Gideon is like the best villain. He really is. I, (laughs) the fear he instilled in me was so real. (laughs) So Caitlin, I know you've never seen Breaking Bad. Yeah. But- so that uh, actor, Giancarlo Esposito, he plays the best villain in Breaking Bad. Oh, He's really? so understated, quiet, calculated. And it's almost like I think that they, he was cast in this role because of that. It's a really iconic role, Gus Fring. And I I think that there's there's so much that he has brought from, I think, Breaking Bad into this role. And he's taken – it's like Gus Fring to me in the most Star Wars way <laughs> where it's over-the-top dramatic in a way that his that character wasn't. But he has a history of playing extremely complicated and really interesting villains. And mm. his lines are just so good. They're so good. And between him and the client, they really stood out as Star Wars characters to me. I think because we're not – I don't know. They just they seem so different but fit so well into the world and the way that they spoke and and Gideon has these lines at the end when he's just standing outside and I think it's um Grief who asks like can you promise our safety or something like you promise you won't kill us basically and Gideon is like no. What I can promise you is that I need you alive in this moment and we'll see what happens next and I'm going to work in my best interest and until I'm not going to. Uh, or until like you're no longer a part of that and of course he said it in a much better way than I just did but he he just oh he did just have this gravitas when he arrived and I remember like when we saw the client for the first time at the Mandalorian panel and within the the Mandalorian itself when it finally aired and the client has this very I don't know how to describe it it's just like kind of not gremlin, but it's just this like very sneaky, very like I'm going to throw my weight around kind of situ- like kind of vibe. Whereas Gideon is just – it's like I'm here. I'm in charge. He doesn't need to throw his weight around. He's just there and you're going to listen to him. And I don't know. They, they contrasted each other really nicely. And then you have someone like Grief, which he's kind of – he's kind of like a darker Hondo <laughs> – um, that's what I was just about to say. Yeah, like he's he's kind of like a like a more evil Hondo because he does have that kind of, oh, well, you know, we've run <laughs> into some problems. And I guess since you're the best of the best, even though last time I saw you, I was trying to kill you. If you come back, I guess I won't kill you this time. <laughs> and I I liked that about grief. And I thought he was kind of – he was fun to watch. But, man, Gideon, Gideon just – I am excited to see the Mandalorian really go up against him next season. I am too. I think that as you were talking and you said the Hondo comparison, I was just about to say the same thing. And I think that 
Gideon to me represents a cross between Tarkin and Thrawn for me. Yeah, yeah, I think exactly. Tarkin, Tarkin is super calculated, but Thrawn, and I think this will reveal itself later, even with the reveal of the Darksaber at the end, I got major Thrawn vibes because I was like, he knows too much about these these this cast People, of characters. Yeah. When he like drops the knowledge when they're kind of in that embankment and he's outside. I think when he is is like, I know basically everything about you and not everyone does, but I do. That was like major Thrawn vibes for me of understanding your opponent and trying to understand basically everything there is about their culture to the point where you steal their darksaber, this cultural symbol that that unites this this people. Do we know that he stole it? We don't. And mm-hmm. I just kind of said that yeah, casually, but, I, but of course, that, but yeah. <laughs> we of course don't know. I can assume that he stole it, but maybe he didn't. Who knows? And I think that, but for me, that's where my brain immediately went is this idea of, which is something we talk about a lot on the show, Caitlin, of erasing cultural um significance really and that's what the empire is really all about and of course we're in the post-empire age where we have these kind of um, fledgling sects almost around um trying to take back or resist the new republic and i i think that it's interesting that perhaps the same thing is happening here again of this continual erasing of a culture a creed um so strong as the Mandalorians, which I think it's it's complicated, guys. Kayla <laughs> <laughs> and I have been on a, a rabbit hole of trying to understand the Siege of Mandalore, the Mandalorian oh. Civil War. I've been I've I been had... deep diving. I just watched a couple episodes of Rebels, and it's not like I don't know this, and it's not like I didn't see this all the, when it aired and everything. But yeah, there's just, with Clone it's Wars just coming so out, much. it's just like cool. I had I had a lot of wrong epiphanies. <laughs> I don't know if they were wrong or I they were just. They're... I don't know. I have no. I was sexy. Charlie. I was like, "What? This is what's ha- this is what's happening. This is the timeline. This is what we're going to see. This is what's happening in Clone Wars." But the timelines are just really confusing. Is they my are. point? Yeah. And I think that there is definitely something happening. Maybe not definitely. I can't say definitely because there's not that much that we know. But I wouldn't be surprised if Moff Gideon was someone who was trying to use the Mandalorian culture against the Mandalorians in order to suppress them coming back in stronger numbers because that's what they do they never die out they always rise well i wouldn't right? be su- i wouldn't be surprised if in season 2 we hear that gideon was you know trained by thron you know just the fact that he has the dark saber and knows what it means probably obviously and he knows all the people that were there i think mm. i wouldn't be surprised to hear that uh, even if it is just a line like well, after Thrawn disappeared, <laughs> hashtag where's well, Ezra? Well, it's confusing because the the last person that we saw have the Darksaber is Bo-Katan. Mm-hmm. So it's what happened to Bo-Katan and I'm really scared because she's one of my favorite characters and I'm nervous about that. I, I hope that, I mean, how cool would it be if we saw Bo-Katan? Oh my God. But I I think that I'm like, what even happened between all this time? Will we ever get those answers? And I think we will because Dave has it all written down in a binder that he has given the directors. 
Yeah, Bryce has it. Hello. I want it. <laughs> Remember? Oh my gosh. I, I forgot about this, but like two months yeah. ago when she did that Instagram live and we were like screenshotting <laughs> like crazy and she was halfway through it. She was like, wow, I shouldn't have shown any of this. <laughs> She's like, you slowly see her kind of start panicking when she realizes that she probably shouldn't have these pieces of paper out. Right. <laughs> she's it's, like, it's She's trying not to show it. She just slowly like, but quickly <laughs> starts to put them away. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, you can't tell anything from the screenshot, no. so she's she's good. But I I think that it's it's just really interesting that yes, all this is laid out. And when when Moff Gideon kind of drops this knowledge bomb, it's like whoa, Kara's from Alderaan. <laughs> yeah, his name is Din. Like <laughs> what? <laughs> you know. And and I think that it's pretty clear to me that Moff has an extensive knowledge. I think you're right that. Per- Perhaps uh, he worked under Thrawn or Thrawn. I'm honestly not sure what the um, how the rankings work. I think Moff is above Grand Admiral, but I could be wrong. And I I think that it's also important to realize that this is five years after Return of the Jedi, which if you want to think about Rebels, which is the last time we saw like Mandalorian content, really. That all happened right before, like two years before the Battle of Yavin. So it's confusing because Rebels continues through the original trilogy timeline. Yeah, but yeah. It, it's hard for me to kind of separate the idea of the, the Mandalorian Civil War, which we saw in Rebels, with the Siege of Mandalore, which will happen in Clone Wars, which means, you know, that's like 20 years before this. 25, 28 years before the Mandalorian. Oh my God, my head is spinning. <laughs> Right. Well, basically, there's like two major events, the Siege of Mandalore during the Clone Wars and then the Mandalorian Civil War. And then there's something else. And that's the thing that I'm really confused about. Like, I don't think the Mandalorian Civil War is necessarily the Mandalorians against the Jedi, but I'm not sure if that's the Siege of Mandalore or if that's just uh, Ahsoka versus Maul. Like, I'm not positive. And I think that that's going to be revealed to us in the next couple of months with uh, the Clone Wars. And I think it's strategic to me, personally, I can see it, how it is strategic that they would release that after the Mandalorian. So within a, within the span of like four months, we get extensive Mandalorian content where we're constantly thinking about it. So we go from Mandalorian to the Clone Wars where they have the Siege of Mandalore. And then in in October, we'll have The Mandalorian again, and hopefully it goes into more. It has to. When your series ends with the Darksaber, you know, I recently saw that on Wikipedia, Wikipedia on the um, on Twitter does like a, a weekly, these are the top pages for the week. Mm-hmm. Darksaber is still up there. And I, it's, I think it was number four or five this past week. And in the past, it has been the number one, number two, number three, all all throughout even the Rise of Skywalker release, I think people are so like, what is that? And that's going to be the major question going into it. Mm-hmm. I think two questions you come out of the Mandalorian with of what does the Empire want with the child? And now it's how does Moff Gideon have the Darksaber and what does that mean for Mandalorians as a culture? Well, is the Mandalorian going to end up with the Darksaber at the end of all this? I'm not sure. The the Darksaber belongs to House Vizsla. I get so confused and kind of self-conscious about this because there's the houses and then there's the clans and it's very, very it's complicated. True, it's, it's like the true leader of Mandalore wields the Darksaber though as well. 
Yes, yes. Tarvisla was the one who created the dark saber, and he was the first Mandalorian Jedi. Which really, it really makes me kind of get my gears going about the fact that we have Baby Yoda, Force sensitive, mm-hmm. who's now technically going to be a Mandalorian. So the person that first wielded the dark saber, which has become a cultural symbol for ruling over Mandalore, was created by the first Jedi Mandalorian. So there's definitely a parallel happening there that it could it could come back around. I don't see why not, right? Where we haven't necessarily explored this idea of a a Force-sensitive Mandalorian before. I definitely think that's what the child is going to be. He'll get a name and he'll be raised under uh, Din's care, Din's effectively his father. And what the... um, what the armorer says to Din is that he, and I'm I'm using the word Din, which is like it's kind of the name weird. Din. It feels weird, but it's actually much easier than saying the Mandalorian. <laughs> but it still doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue just quite yet. I, I oh, eventually Din Jaren. Din Jaren. Yeah, it's weird. It's called Jaren. Yeah, it works. Whatever, Din. And I. I think that in that moment when the armorer, she is like, you earned your signet, you now are a clan of two, you are effectively this child's father and you have to find, and I don't, do we have the quote here, Caitlin? Let's see. Let's do at the end. Um, he says, it is a foundling, it's a creed, you must, reunite it, you must reunite it with its own kind and then asks where. And the armorer says, or and then Din says, "You expect me to search the galaxy for its kind and return it to a group of enemy sorcerers?" And the armorer replies, "This is the way. You must the go. Enemy. A foundling yeah. is in your care. The creed is until it is of age or reunited with its own kind, you are as its father. This is the way." Okay. First off, really emotional moment. I yeah. loved this. This is yeah. this is another moment in The Mandalorian, though. I do feel like they're really dropping a lot of knowledge on you really quickly. And oh, I was yeah. just like, whoa, 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 back up. And this isn't a, a negative because I think that it is providing a lot for us to think about and talk about right now. But I was like, whoa, there's a lot there. <laughs> um, I think that it's really interesting, though, because it, it, The Mandalorian, again, The Mandalorian history, especially with the Darksaber, is so interesting because it has been passed throughout so many different people so many different clans but it did start from a jedi mandalorian and it was kept in the jedi temple until it was stolen by the mandalorians and like re reintroduced to their culture which i think that there's a conversation there about like whether or not the jedi deserve to keep it there there's a there's an interesting thing there that i'm sure you're very interested in caitlin knowing what you're your your interests lie in terms of like does it belong in a museum or does it belong with the Mandalorians? <laughs> and I, I I really do think that that's fascinating. And and then you have the fact that the Mandalorians and the Jedi were at war. So when the Mandalorian says you expect me to search a, for a in return it to a group of enemy sorcerers, sorcerer well, being the Jedi. So there's this like built in prejudice. I think there's really a theme going on constantly in the mandalorian about prejudice din has it against droids he has to get over it because the droid literally saves his own life but also the lives of everyone there here's the interesting thing about this whole line and you're right like the this whole 
I remember when we first watching The Mandalorian the first time and really the first time we're in the armorer's um, forge is in the sin. And it's after he gives up baby Yoda and he goes and he's telling the armorer about how he got all this Beskar. He defeated the Mudhorn. Is that what it's called? Yeah, <laughs> the Mudhorn. And he's, she says, oh, that'll be – that's your signet then. And he says, no, that can't be my signet. I was helped by the enemy. And she asks, what do you mean you were helped by the enemy? And he replies back, it didn't know it was my enemy. And there's something just like so lovely about that moment. And it's also in the Armor's Forge where we're getting – where Din is having all these flashbacks of his mm-hmm. past life. And I remember we left that when we left um, – what's the planet called that they're on? Uh, I think it's Navarro. You're right. You're right. It's Navarro. Um, or is it Navarra? It's one of those, but you're right. Yeah. And so <laughs> when they leave, we kind of – I remember watching that and I remember thinking like, wow, like we're going to get so much in this season about like we're going to keep seeing flashbacks of Din's life and when he, you know, became a Mandalorian, what it means to be a foundling. You and I had so much speculation about this and then it really wasn't a part of the rest of the season <laughs> until we come back to the Armorer's Forge. And but now he has the baby Yoda with him. The armor is like all-knowing and amazing and I love her. And she's the one that tells the Mandalorian about the Jedi, but she never uses the word Jedi because the mm-hmm. the Mandalorian doesn't. He he said he tells her how the baby has power and he can move things, and he's the one that helped him defeat the Mudhorn and that he healed grief and he you know he has these abilities that he just he's never seen before. And the armor is the one who tells him about what you were talking about—the war between the between the Mandalorians and the Jedi, or the sorcerers. And that's when he says, "Does you expect me to search the galaxy and return it to a group of enemy sorcerers?" And this, you and I get asked this question a lot about if we could have any kind of Star Wars story, what would we propose? And I, I've said before that I want like a Miyazaki type of animation film, but I actually think I want this story of the erasure of the history of the Jedi. Because no matter where we've been going in the Star Wars world, no one knows about the Jedi anymore. And it's crazy to me how quickly that whole history was eradicated and erased like from the galaxy. It's, It's actually really insane to me because, again, not that much time has passed. Before Revenge of the Sith, I mean, Din was or after Revenge of the Sith, and and the and the way that it's juxtaposed, I think, in the Mandalorian is really fascinating because everyone that Din comes in contact with knows about the Mandalorians, but no one knows anything about the Jedi. Din doesn't even know what the Force is. Yeah, that it could like that that Yoda and and the fact that there's like no one knows what Baby Yoda is, even though actual Yoda you know 30 years ago was was essentially a, a general and was, was a very was a public figure a very public right. figure and it's it's crazy to me i like that's what i want to know is how palpatine did it because he did it so well and some sometimes for me i'm like there's no way like there's got to be like a secret sect of people like keeping alive the jedi histories and i feel like there is almost like fahrenheit 451 style you know how there's like that group of people that are just rotely memorizing books in order to keep the stories alive and i feel like there has to be something like that with the jedi because because we know that there are still jedi alive 
Uh, you know, we've seen it in Kanan. Ahsoka obviously knows who they are. Um, there are a lot of people that know who the Jedi are. But even the way the armorer talks about it here, I think we don't know how old she is. We might be able to infer that she was at least alive during Order 66 or during the time of the Clone Wars or her parents were. Like all of these people's parents were alive during the Clone Wars, but none of them know about the Jedi. <laughs> it's just, it it blows my I really can't believe it and I need I want I want more information on how he did it because the fact that the Mandalorians are so well known and that everywhere Din goes, oh, you're a Mandalorian. I didn't think there were any of them left. No one says that about the Jedi. No one says, oh, that kid can use the Force. I didn't think there were any Force users left. It's a complete anomaly. And the difference between the two is like fascinating, especially considering that they were once at war with each other not so long ago in the not-so-distant past. I don't know. Um it's it's really curious and like going through this timeline and I don't know, I hope – I mean maybe Gideon will be the person who's telling us more about this time period of, of, of reckoning for the galaxy, honestly. And honestly, that's probably how we should be talking about the Clone Wars season seven. It's the reckoning and then – episode three is not redemption it's it's damnation and and then we're dealing with the after effects in the mandalorian now of everything that happened during that time and maybe what we see in the reckoning of the clone wars period is how all of that history of the jedi and of force users and of force capabilities because what we've also seen throughout all these other animation animated stories and and even nope really just animation is (laughs) (laughs) really just animation (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a mood <laughs> is that there are these different school well that's not true rogue one <laughs> yeah, there are these different true. schools of people that are using the force just not in the way the jedi do where are all those people that would know about yoda i don't like that the force can be manifested in like the physical world like that i don't know but and then you have someone like ray who knows about luke and knows about the jedi but Din doesn't, even though all of that just happened and has never heard of the Jedi? Like, how is this legend of Luke Skywalker being transmitted to the galaxy? I just, I'm always thinking about this. I can't stress that enough. <laughs> never not thinking about this. <laughs> about the the, transi- the transmission of of culture in the galaxy. Yeah. It's really, it's it's fascinating. Speaking of kind of transmission of culture or deletion of culture really how interesting is it that Kara is from Alderaan my god so interesting I did not expect that at all but I think that it really gives a further like roundness to her anger towards the Imperials there's a couple conversations in her in her scenes which are too few I cannot wait to get more Kara in season two but there are a couple times where she is where she's trying to be convinced really to join the fight and it's like no i'm not going to come no why do i have to do that i'm going to be taken like i don't want to put myself in that sort of jeopardy but then she hears that oh no we're going against the imperials and she's like yes you know i'm down and i think that it really it it makes sense why she would be like that but she's definitely because she is more a tomboy is not the right word. It just isn't. But I think that she is kind of the opposite of Princess Leia 
in what we understand in terms of uh, like Alderanian culture and like mm-hmm. what we know, especially what we learned in Leia, Princess of Alderaan. I think that we saw a lot of the royalty and kind of the upper class there. And I'm not saying that Kara isn't that, but Kara is a fighter and she is strong. She's just a different and type of warrior. She is. She is. And I think that it, it just it really surprised me that she was from Alderaan, but of course it makes sense. I mean, she has braided hair. So cool. <laughs> it's, I love that, that small detail, you know? And I, I, I think that it's interesting in terms of what I was saying before about how like each character has their prejudices. Um, I think that Kara has a, a rightful prejudice against the child until after the child tries to choke her when she was just kind of goofing off with Din. And I think that it's not until, again, she, she witnesses this act of compassion. It kind of changes both grief and Kara in that moment to understand, like, whoa, this this baby's, like, really special. And it can, it, I don't know, it needs a home or it needs help or something, you know? And I I don't know. I think that there's this... Star Wars explained when I was watching their videos in uh, like a few weeks ago, um, something they said has really stuck with me about how baby Yoda is kind of this lit- litmus test almost for people of how are they going to treat the baby? <laughs> and I think that you have grief who wanted to take the baby, but until he witnesses the compassion, he is all in <laughs> change of heart and same thing happens with Kara and I obviously the same thing happens with the Mandalorian Um, it's not until I mean I guess I think that he feels immediate compassion really for the child because I think he sees himself in the child and I think that you see that that perfect reflection of uh, his flashback when you get the full flashback Um, and then in the, the finale scene with the child then on his shoulder as they're like blasting off um with it's like it's the same scene as when Din as a child is blasting off with dun 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 Death Watch. <laughs> Still <laughs> not over it. In our complicated There's Mandalorian history. Mandalorian timeline. <laughs> yeah. It's so confusing, but I cannot believe it's Death Watch. But I also can. It's very strange. <laughs> but regardless, there's what what Alex and Molly had said about how baby Yoda is this litmus test really for like the goodness and the compassion that can be present in a character. Um, I think that you see that throughout several, several characters, you even see it with the Amy Sedaris character, right? Of, yes. And I, it, it almost to the point where it's like cartoonish, but at the same time, that's exactly what happens. And um, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me, but to pivot almost to the death watch thing, I don't know. Oh, I, I didn't pick this up the first time I watched this. I, it had to be definitely pointed out to me on online, and then I definitely cross-referenced it. The Death Watch symbol is present on the armor in the flashback with the super battle droids when Din is a child. The Mandalorians who rescue Din are members of Death Watch, which is insane given the fact that Death Watch is definitely enemy number one in or maybe enemy number two honestly in in clone wars they're very very violent and they were in cahoots with mall so in cahoots so i'm just like i 
I'm shocked that we see <laughs> this kind of act of, again, compassion towards a foundling, which is Din, um, from Death Watch. But at the same time, Death Watch's whole mission is to kind of bring back Mandalore. Exactly. So, of course, if the foundlings are the future and if this, if that is part of the creed, right, then, of course, they're going to raise Jin as one of their own. And I don't I think that that even speaks to the larger theme of it's again, I'm not a parent. I am only 26. I don't I don't know things about parenting, but I think that there's definitely a theme of how you are raised that is bringing being brought up in the Mandalorian of I think that like this was majorly raised I believe in when baby Yoda basically uses the dark side on Kara and I think that it's this moment where it's like whoa he has no idea what he's doing with his powers Mm -hmm. he just has them and I think this is like a Kylo Ren like you need a teacher kind of moment (laughs) because he really does need to understand his full potential his full power and it really is like how you are raised. And the same thing with Din. I think that Din had these prejudices and it's all he has known is the Mandalorian way of life. It's I think we're about to see him go on this journey really of raising another person and how that will affect like there's that line. I think is it Kara that says it they will or I think it's grief that says it that you know, they will teach each other something, you know, um, yeah, at yeah, the very end. That. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a really good They'll take care of each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that there's a definitely a parenting theme that's happening here. Yeah, definitely. I think that what the Mandalorian history is, I think why we've been so obsessed with what, like trying to track it when honestly a year ago we were not. <laughs> I think we always thought the Mandalorian history was really fascinating, but it was, I don't know, it wasn't, again, it wasn't what I like spent my Star Wars time thinking about. But I think once you are starting to put all these pieces together and seeing, I think the Mandalorians at this point have the most complicated history. They have the most pieces, I think, of one culture kind of represented in these different eras and like a lot of content about them, which is funny thinking that it all kind of stemmed from Boba Fett in that like 2.7 seconds that he was in Return of the Jedi. (laughs) And now we have this whole backstory that exists of this culture and like how they were going, you know, how we thought that because Boba Fett was a Mandalorian that they were going to be this really, you know, like barbarous and and warrior race and then we have someone like Satine who is not and she's a pacifist but then we learned that the Mandalorians were a warrior race at one time and that's part of what Death Watch is trying to do they're trying to get back to the real Mandalore they're against Satine and her pacifist reign and then we're in Rebels timeline and it looks completely different and we have this civil war and and then we get to the point where they're exterminated I guess to a certain extent and I guess like mass genocide of the Mandalorian race. I don't. I don't really know. That's the piece we don't have yet. And so they are taking these children, these foundlings, and bringing them up in the Mandalorian way. To like, what is the motivation there? Is mm. it is it to preserve the Mandalorian culture? Is it to save these kids? Is it twofold? 
were they the ones attacking? I think that's that those are my questions about what the Mandalorians were doing at that time. Because I think on the one hand, it's really cool because I think throughout history we see a lot uh, like people are scared of people who are different from them and who come from different cultures and backgrounds and have different beliefs and traditions. And um, a lot of wars were fought over that kind of stuff, um, you know, and the fact that the Mandalorians are actively taking in people that are not from their quote unquote race is, I think, a it's like admirable. But then you also wonder what is the motivation there are is there an element of kidnapping here um (laughs) i think there are just so many shades of gray within that conversation and there's so much we still don't know about what the mandalorians were doing and what their end goal was there and the fact that they that like din grew up in this culture that took him in and he's obviously very grateful for that but then at the same time he like can't take off his helmet ever yeah, that's all he's ever known. Yeah, and does he miss something he doesn't know? Should mm. we f- should we feel bad for him? Does he feel bad for himself that that's not his life? Because he obviously has memories of his parents in that moment when they were separated. We don't know if he has memories from before then of what his life looked like before he became a Mandalorian. But I think like the trauma of that moment of separation from his parents and being rescued by Death Watch, that's obviously like – He's grateful for the life that he does have. And there certainly is good that comes out of that. But again, what what were the Mandalorians doing? Were they rescuing? Were they out tracking children to take to be foundlings? The Death Watch we saw in Clone Wars was pretty darn evil. And how maybe that's change in the interim. I don't know. I just I think it's I don't know. I think it's a really fascinating culture and. I need to do more of my own deep dive on it, honestly, because it goes through so many different iterations, I think, unlike anything else we have in Star Wars. Um, Like the Jedi are pretty easy to track. (laughs) We've got the rise, we've got the fall, and I guess... I guess I don't really know what we're doing next, but <laughs> like through the prequel trilogy, it's pretty easy to see what's going on with them. And I think um, Mandalore really is kind of the only other culture that we have this much information about. I'd say we have a lot about Alderaan, but it's not it's not the same. There's not there's no we have no visuals of Alderaan, really, the way we do with Mandalore. We have some, but not a lot. No, it's easy to see why John Favreau would be so interested in it. It it makes sense to me. Like I can follow his line of thinking of being f- so fascinated by his own character pre Vizsla, and learning what he knows about it, speaking to Dave about it, and then being like, "Wow, there's so much here." You know, I can just imagine that that whole conversation, and I just think it's like eh, it is so ripe for amazing storytelling potential, and that's why we're having a whole series that can be sort of separate from everything in Star Wars because, like you say, it has such a rich culture. That's like that's why it's also confusing is because it is kind of separated from like these these touch points that we're so familiar with in Star Wars. Um, I think that they are becoming more part of our like Star Wars cultural subconscious, really, with things like the Siege of Mandalore and like looking back upon things um in rebels and everything, but it feels like we're just now getting started with like planting our feet on the ground in terms of knowing everything we can about the Mandalorian culture. I think that's such a good point you brought up, Charlotte, that I don't think we've really talked about on the show with the Mandalorian of the fact that like 
John Favreau being so obsessed with his own character <laughs> on <Yeah>. Clone Wars. <laughs> um, because those are some of the best Clone Wars episodes is with Death Watch and Pre Vizsla was an instant hit. And I think that, again, this is where some great behind-the-scenes content would be so beneficial to just hear more about that writing process and what John Favreau brought to the table, what Dave already had with George, or just that Dave had kind of mapped out himself. Um, that writing process, I think, would be so interesting because there are a lot of pieces that were already in play for Mandalore. And they would have known that Clone Wars was coming back at that time, too. So were things shifted around as the Mandalorian was in development? I think – I yeah, I just – I want to hear more about that side of things, too. And, like, getting into Jon Favreau's head more about his time as pre Vizsla. We should go back and watch some of the behind-the-scenes from Clone Wars with pre Vizsla because yeah, they exist and we haven't watched them. And we're bad podcast hosts for not doing that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, we've watched them, but yeah, not in a while. And, yeah, not recently. And we've watched everything. <laughs> from but things, this is where it gets crazy is that things have new context when they have mm-hmm. deeper meaning. When yeah. you have a whole new show, when you have, when things like Rebels add to this whole concept of House Vizsla. Yeah. And I think that it's, even talking about John's own relation to his character pre Vizsla, and even even in I think episode three or chapter three, he plays Pax Vizsla, and mm-hmm. it's confusing. I think that I've I've spoken before about how I'm slightly confused about now John having voiced three pretty big characters in Star Wars, it's getting a little confusing. But at the same time, <laughs> it makes sense to me that the main character of the show's rescuer would be the Death Watch, which is what. John, his original Clone Wars role was. He really bought into Pre Vizsla's philosophy. Yes. So that's really, I think, the probably the the beginnings of him writing the story. Most of these episodes are written by John Favreau, if not all of them. I'm not they all positive are. about that. I'm pretty sure they all yeah. are. Yeah. And I think that it's it's just it's clear to me that that was the starting point, and that's his like point of knowledge. Not that, yeah. not saying that he's not super knowledgeable. I think he is at this point, especially with Dave by his side. But I think that that was the beginning. Yeah, I think it would be it would be great, you know, in rewatching the pre Vizsla content, behind the scenes content to see. I don't know. I'm wondering, like, can I see the wheels turning in John's head even back then? You know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, because it would be it would be really interesting because we know that when Dave would have like recurring guests on and stuff like that, and whenever they were in the recording booth, he does kind of lay it all out. But he only he only ever gives information that's needed for the scene. I think that was always a big thing that like Ashley and Matt and James Arnold Taylor would talk about is that he gives you good information, but it's only the information you need. Like, oh, something's coming down the line and you'll know about it when we get there. <laughs> it seems like Bryce Bryce got a lot of info. She, a lot of background info for very uncharacteristic. For a lot yeah. of different reasons. I would like that. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, the flip side of that is that, like, you know, Matt and Ashley and James Arnold Taylor are, like, actors in the show. And John Favreau is an actor, but he's also a writer. And they totally have this deal worked out with like Iron Man and Clone Wars and stuff like that. And so they're talking about all these things and they're bouncing ideas off of each other. And so 
like more is being written. I don't know. I think I would like them to do a bit of a retrospective on how that time during pre if there were any influences on what we're seeing in The Mandalorian now. Any of those ideas, were any of the ideas from Mandalorian kind of sewn in very early stages when John was recording for pre and The Clone Wars? And even like, I mean, we even have the, just, just to mention, Forces of Destiny has the Mandalorian episode where we've got the statue of the original Vizsla, right? That's who that is. Yeah. Tar Vizsla. Yeah, Tar Vizsla. Uh, we see his monument in Mandalore, uh, on Mandalore, and that's a great Force of the Destiny episode. You should definitely watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's there's just a lot of meat here, and I think more than anything what I'm hoping for season two is that it just continues to get weirder, and I think it will, and this, this whole ending of redemption with the armorer and din and baby yoda i think for me really gave me hope for that kind of weirdness and again because i felt so much more like a storybook where we're literally turning the pages on these different chapters i think as we enter into like volume two i think that you know them talking about i you have to reunite it with its own kind we're going on a hunt for more yodas (laughs) do you think that that's what we're gonna do that's what I'm hoping we're doing. And that's interesting I, that you hope that because I don't think a lot of people hope that. I definitely do. I mean, if we're looking for more, if we're looking for where he came from, where baby, Yoda, where did baby Yoda come from? I mean, that's what Quill says in the beginning when they're talking about him. And he's like, oh, is he genetically engineered? And Quill says, no, he's too ugly for that. That's so and, funny. And I'm like, Quill, I'm sorry. <laughs> baby Yoda is Excuse horrible. Me? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, have you seen the memes? And uh, he says and, – and Quill says that he worked on gene farms and that Baby Yoda didn't come from that. So – and and this this has big holocron heist energy and this is an episode from the Clone Wars where uh, the Jedi had – within the Jedi Temple, they had this holocron that had a list of all the Force-sensitive children. And so Baby Yoda's on that list. He was alive. And he's on that list that we see Cad Bane steal in holocron heist. Which is so freaky. (laughs) And when you really think about it, it's kind of mind-blowing. And so Palpatine probably has that list or or got a piece of it or or has it now. I'm thinking like he didn't get it in Clone Wars, but after they took over the galaxy, he definitely went back into the Jedi Temple and got that holocron, you know? And what like where did baby yoda come from i think that's the que- i think that that's the most interesting question i think because there is so much we don't know about the yoda species and are all yoda this is the question we had in the very beginning are all yodas force sensitive does this yeah. species in particular have a heightened uh sensitivity to the force like all of them i just i think there's i think there's so much room to get really weird in season 2 if din if all he knows is that they were once enemy sorcerers, that's his only knowledge of the Force and of the Jedi. I think it could get so interesting if he like runs into like imagine if he runs into someone like Mika Gray from Resistance, and Whoa. she's like, "Let me tell you what I know." <laughs> or <laughs> I don't know, and like he's getting these clues about where to find where where the yodas all come from i don't know i think it could get so weird and it would still be this kind of chapter by chapter leading but i think 
depending on how much they have charted out already, and I'd imagine they seeing how popular Mandalorian is, they probably I feel like they have like four seasons, I think of the Mandalorian would be great. And so if season two is going to bring us to our middle points, then we're kind of going to be going downwards, I think into like some darker stuff and some weirder stuff. And I don't know. I think, I think there's a lot of room there to talk about what's been happening in the galaxy and talk about the force and talk about it from the perspective of a character who has no idea what's going on. Because a lot of the like super weird things that happen in the force and in Star Wars has a smaller audience scale. Um, Like less people are watching things like Mortis and World Between Worlds than are watching Empire Strikes Back, where that kind of force usage has been around for 40 years and is normal (laughs) in like the collective consciousness of what the force is. But to have a, a species that has never been explored before in a time period where the force, where knowledge of the force is eradicated, And a culture that was against that quote unquote religion and organization and is also an orphan himself. I don't know. There's just so much room there. And that's, again, this was like me speculate, like getting excited about season two. And even if it doesn't take that direction, I'm sure it will be great. But right now I'm like, wow, let's make it so weird. (laughs) And I just imagine like the Mandalorian on Dagobah and like all these different Yodas (laughs) Coming out of different swamps. Like E.T. <laughs> yeah. Like the E.T. ride in Universal yes. Studios. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> E.T. but make Star Wars. Yeah. Okay. Ugh. So I I have a theory. Do you want oh, to hear oh. my theory? Yeah. 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 I do. Okay. So this is how I think this show's going to end. I think that this revelation by the armorer of having to find his kind or you know effectively you are his father that temporary vibe of until you find his 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 being then you are his father i think that we will eventually grow into a place where that his kind doesn't necessarily matter we could still go on the self discovery that you mentioned this et planet whatever but i think that at the end of the day I think that perhaps the child will identify more with Din in his own journey, in his fatherhood, than than his own kind, and it will kind of uh, kind of drill home this uh, this theme that is ever present in Star Wars of adoption. And I think that by the end of it, this is where it gets wild. My wild theory. I'm ready. The child will be faced with the decision about whether or not to go with his own kind or to stay with Din. But because he ages slowly, he will choose to age out until Din dies. Then we'll go back to his own kind. Ow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) <laughs> that's what i think i'm oh. I'm laying it out here on february 24th 2020 <laughs> that i think that's when that's what's gonna happen i um yeah yeah i think you're definitely i think i think this i think this series ends with them together i think you're absolutely right yeah. about that they're, they're a clan of two yeah they're Th- them of- saying that i think isn't just a temporary no title i think that it is the theme of the show 
And yes, we can find, we can discover what we need to discover about the child's own force sensitivity and his species. Cause I, you're right. It is a major mystery and it is something that the armor brought up. So it will be explored. It's like Chekhov's gun. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that it is at the end of the day, he's not going to find that sense of home with the people that he hasn't been with i don't know i think that it's it that doesn't really serve the story the story is stronger when it is the father and son yeah well the question the question is also then are there still other yodas out there maybe something maybe maybe there isn't ever i don't know that's the weird thing we've only ever had yoda and yaddle and yes (laughs) (laughs) we have you're right (laughs) so how like how many of them are there and it feels like in the prequel trilogy timeline excuse me the second trilogy timeline we had the the jedi and the republic and the separatists everything the galaxy felt pretty chartered it was like it felt like people knew what was out there. There were the unknown regions, of course, but it felt like everything that was in these other areas, we knew what planet was what, we knew who was from where. I don't know, things felt a bit more concrete. Whereas in this timeline, when the galaxy has regressed and history is being controlled by Palpatine, there are so many more questions. But I think the thing that was... I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like at some version, at some point, we would have known that there were more Yodas out there, like more of the species in the second trilogy timeline. And I guess that's not a fair assumption, but I don't know. It kind of feels like maybe we would have. And so I wonder if maybe there's only ever like one or two uh, or maybe they the ones like baby Yoda's parents were killed, but that would have been back in Phantom Menace timeline. You know, there's just there's so many questions about it. But I think you're right. I think they end the series together. And I don't know. When you were talking, it was like now I got this really sad vision of like them finally finding Baby Yoda's home. But it's like desolate and empty because there's no one there because they are all gone. They're all dead. Um, I bet that would completely mirror Din's own life, which his parents are dead. At least that's what I assume. Um, unless do we see them get murdered, or do we just no, hear them? No, no, they close. I think we hear it. They like close the doors, and I think and then we there's see a bomb, droid, yeah, or something. Yeah, like, I think yeah. it's I think it's pretty safe to say they're gone. Regardless, um, that town was completely decimated. So whatever yeah. life that did and his parents knew there is gone. So I think that's an so interesting will they, theory. Will they go there too and like revisit that place? Does Din even remember? where that place is, like what that planet is. Because then you have this interesting conversation too of like found family. And like you said, like adoption, like Din is Mandalorian, but he was also something else before that too. And Yeah, it's a creed. It's not a, a race. Yeah. A is there is there any part of him, if he does remember or if he remembers in the future what came before he was Mandalorian? Does any because I remember talking about when we saw those trailers and stuff that like what they were wearing seemed like ceremonial clothes almost like they were all in like these red robes kind of yeah. thing. And it was like we wondered, we speculated about if there was like a ritual going on at that time, or maybe that's just what people wore. We don't know. But if it was like a ritual or traditional clothing, even 
is there a part of him that still would remember that or identify with that? But then his identity then becomes more like that, like to baby Yoda, that becomes his, like his center, his core. And I think the true, the same would be true for baby Yoda. Like who knows what baby Yoda can or can't remember. Does he have force abilities where like if he touches something, it could give him a memory um, like Quinlan Voss, uh, Ray. Um, I think there, the fact that he like can't verbalize, I think presents like, it's really interesting to see how they use that um, in the future in the storytelling. But it's still crazy thinking about like, how long has he been with the empire or like hidden away? He was born in Phantom Menace timeline thereabouts. It's just kind of, it's, it kind of boggles the mind. So he has seen the Jedi, maybe. Mm. But he we don't was- know. An infant, though. (laughs) Like, I think that right now he is a toddler. And I think it was, like, what sort of cognition was happening in that time period. He, like, impressed memories to someone else, though? Maybe. I mean, you never know. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I yeah, I like I said, I just, I think there's so much room for it to get weirder. And I, I'm, I hope, I hope it does, because that's. I love that side of it, of Star Wars, but I know that it's going to be good, whatever it is. I agree. I have the utmost faith in this, that I'm with you. Of course, I want it to get, to get weird, and I want to explore all of the weirdness that is the Force. I think that I wasn't expecting this series to kind of deal with that at all, but concurrently, I think we're going to be dealing with Mandalorian culture and things like the Darksaber and the Jedi, mm-hmm. or the Force, and what sort of emotions does that bring? Like just to kind of bring it all back to this war between the Jedi and the Mandalorian. And even like, I really do think that Tar Vizsla as the first Jedi Mandalorian will come back um, in the series with force sensitive to the child. I think that that will have, have some sort of parallel. We'll see. It's just so fascinating. I, I think that there's, there's really a lot to talk about, I think, in this show that we haven't even talked about yet. Um, I kind of want to talk about a little bit of Queel and IG-11, who kind of operate kind of together, because I think there's this beautiful montage of when Queel discusses reforging and putting back together IG-11. It, like, totally brought me to tears. I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but the image of Queel going and retrieving this droid there's not like really i've mentioned this on other pod- podcast episodes before but everything droid based in like droid sentience and everything post l337 in solo like things have changed for me and when i think about droids I-, I don't know about you but like this collection of the pieces and this reconstruction and this relearning this beautiful montage really of and it's funny too which is great um mm-hmm. of kind of this awkward toddler IG-11 droid. And I think that in a way, like, does it parallel what could happen with the child in Mandalorian? Yes, I do think so. Um, but I think that there's there's something, again, to go back to, like, you only know what you know and you only yeah. know what you've been programmed. I think that we the first time we see IG-11 is that he's been programmed to kill and he has, like, one job and then he's so so funny with this whole self-destruct thing. 
<laughs> and later, when Quill is able to reprogram him as a nurse droid, and he has that secondary programming even later when he sacrifices himself, um, I think that that reprogramming, there's a certain, obviously a certain amount of trust that comes from Din in order to trust this droid that was a murder bot before with his child you can say that now his child yeah and i think i I love the word murder bot i have to use it sometimes (laughs) just funny like you have you have the the calf droid (laughs) never forget that's a murder bot that is that is a murder bot if there's ever triple triple zero in the afro comics and definitely Mm -hmm. a murder bot i think that there's just um anyway what i'm saying is that there's this like really amazing theme of like unlearning what you have learned really which i think is so star wars from empire strikes back yoda says that i of you only you can change you can obviously constantly always change your path and this was a perfect example of that for me of someone taking a chance on something that was broken like the ig11 and then helping him have a new purpose which it was just beautiful yeah i thought that i didn't know i needed it yeah watching him i remember the first time watching the montage of quill reforging ig11 and i remember thinking man we're spending a lot of time with this (laughs) reforging (laughs) (laughs) and i remember thinking where's baby yoda (laughs) (laughs) i would like to see the baby (laughs) (laughs) he's sleeping open the pram <laughs> um i think the fact that the word pram exists in canon and was said by werner herzog trying to see the baby is just like a whole combination of things i never anticipated in star wars and i love it so much but yeah i remember thinking i was like we are spending so much time on this reforging and i remember thinking do i care <laughs> what what are we going towards and then even even in my first viewing of of watching it and then seeing at the end when he like i still don't understand why din doesn't like droids but i guess because they killed his parents i don't know why i'm like trying to make it this bigger thing but he probably assumes that they killed his parents and so that's part of why he hates them and the fact that ig11 tried to you know murder bot murder baby yoda is murder obviously murder bot <laughs> murdered <laughs> and, uh baby yoda and then like just the whole trajectory of them at the end and din is literally willing to die before he takes off his helmet and ig11 finally convinces him to do it and all he needs is a little back to spray and you even see it on pedro's face he's like oh I'll be okay. <laughs> IG11 is like, yeah, yes, yeah. Let's, let's, and he even says, he's like, I was trying to make a joke. I forget what yeah, the joke was, but <laughs> it was so funny. No, he's he makes a joke about his like internal processing core. Oh and yeah, Din's like, you be my brain. <laughs> yeah, so and great. I just like I was trying to make a joke. Um, <laughs> Relatable. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> when uh, someone doesn't take your joke. <laughs> <laughs> I I do that. That happens to me too much. <laughs> too often. <laughs> and I'll usually make a joke about something that came up in conversation like five minutes prior and everyone's moved on and forgotten about it. And I'm like, oh no. Remember, it's funny because we were just talking about this thing like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> and they're like, 
no. No. Please move on. <laughs> um, get new material, Caitlin. Literally. The, the world moves fast. <laughs> You'll miss the jokes if you don't grab them immediately. And uh, anyway, so with IG-11, I remember – like wondering why we were spending so much time on this and then like seeing it really come to the conclusion at the end. And I love how that's the thing that's kind of great about the Mandalorian is I think we expected him to just immediately fall in love with baby Yoda. And I think he does kind of, kind of, but it's also, he's also quite trepidatious about it because he doesn't know what he's going to do with the child. (laughs) And at first he just wants to like keep the child safe and it kind of goes against his morals. So just give him up. But then he actually forges a relationship with baby Yoda. And now he's as his father and that's completely different. And the, Din is someone who I think takes the Mandalorian creed so seriously. He he obviously does. That when the armorer says that, it means something in, incredibly substantial to him. I think you like see that weight kind of fall on him immediately. And mm-hmm. it's different than anything else that's come before in the season. Even as he has, you know, risked life and limb for the for the child, this is very different. Um, he's now to baby Yoda, the very thing that he lost when he was a child too, his mother and his father. And and I love the moment when they're on the ship. Number one, I got to say, I love the setting of that ship, like that boat in the lava. We've never mm-hmm. seen something like that in Star Wars. And I thought it was, I thought it was really, it felt like a tunnel under a castle, like a moat. It and felt mythic to it me. Did. It really did. And like the, the river sticks and we've got the tr- the R2 unit. Like, the cursed R2. The cursed R2. Doomed in- to, to drive on the river sticks. Literally. <laughs> he's like covered in lava and it just like cracks Poor off. Guy. Him. And then Poor like, guy. he stands up and he's he's like a he's like a he's like a scary R2 unit that has like arms and legs and he's just like plowing them down the the lava river. Anyway, I love I love love that whole scene so much. You're, you're right; it feels incredibly mythic, and you know, a moat in a dungeon and a castle. But it's lava, and it's Star Wars, and there are robots, and it's really cool. And seeing when IG Eleven realizes that his programming is telling him to basically self destruct, you see that moment from Din where he looks back, and you know that he is regretful of what is going to happen and that he wishes it wasn't happening. And, you know, like we kind of talked about at the top of the show, redemption, not just being for one character. It's not just for IG-11. It's for all of them in that moment. I think it's it's for IG-11 and then it's also for Din and his feelings towards it and the redemption of, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Din like being this. sad of a, yeah. over a sacrifice of a droid. He's even called out upon it. Yeah. IG-11 is like, you're sad. I can, I've studied your voice. I know. You don't yeah. have to be sad. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's, yes. it's so much. And I think that it you're right that in that moment it's this full circle of we've seen basically almost every single episode of din being prejudiced towards droids and as an audience member we know that like that's not cool because droids you know can be sentient like (laughs) it's okay we get it now we've seen we've seen characters that we know and love that um have emotions and feelings and uh free will in a sense right and i think that there's this this uh 
again, this like mutuality that happens between them, this trust. And that's why that moment is so sad because Din recognizes that that sacrifice will save them all and that perhaps he had been wrong all this time about not trusting him. Yeah, I think that's part of the tragedy of Star Wars that we see so often. And Rogue One always kind of exemplifies this the best is that I was wrong, but there's no more time left. Mm-hmm. And this is this is all we have. This is the moment oh. that we have. Yeah. And I think that happened in The Rise of Skywalker, too. This like that's all the time that we have is that, yes, I was wrong. And but here I am at the end doing the right thing you're right like in rise of skywalker and then also now what we saw in the mandalorian in this moment too is like he's had this about face and he realized then that he was wrong in in his prejudice towards droids maybe not towards all droids but towards this droid in particular and now it's too late and this is the end and what IG-11 says at the end, he's like, don't cry. I was never – I can't die. I was never alive. It's just – it's so much. And it really is. It really is. And that's so – it's it's a really – I've never I, been alive. Yeah. Yeah. It's – I think it goes really well with like, the, like what you were talking about earlier, like with L3 and how that's kind of changed the conversation with droids and um, their sentience. But then also like in this instance, they're not – and IG-11 acknowledges that he isn't. And I think this too plays into the conversation within the Clone Wars that we were just having with the episode Bad Batch about what the what the clones are if they're not fulfilling their purpose. Are they still human? Are they still like individuals? Um, and Clone Wars pushes to prove that they are, but then they are also bound to their genetic coding. And I think it's kind of the same with the droids in a way. Like they have these personalities and Quill even says so much when we're going through this whole montage of reforging. He's like he developed his own idiosyncrasies and and um, personality as he was relearning everything that he had to do. Um, but in the end, IG-11, the droid himself said, you know, I, I was never alive to begin with and that you shouldn't be sad that this is the end for me. But we – are and Mm -hmm. because we've gotten to know him and i think it was the same thing with l3 and i wish l3 had had more of a moment to say something like that either for herself or for the audience i don't really know um but i think that the whole conversation of what is because i think we look at a lot of droids and and especially like r2 and bb bb8 and stuff you know in fan fiction like modern au's they're always like dogs like the Mm -hmm. droids always dogs because they're like little pets and r2 and bb8 i think fit into that mold really well because they're shorter than us they don't speak english basic and they chirp like it mm-hmm. like a pet would whereas you know characters like l3 and ig11 and um like c3po it's it's a lot different and like even even like thinking before the rise of skywalker came out of saying goodbye to c3po you know i'm taking one last look at my friends and all his memories are going to be deleted and we're really sad about that but why are we really sad about that like he's not human but he's still meaningful i don't know i think it's a really complicated discussion and i think that star wars shows a lot of different sides of it throughout these different stories 
Yeah, I totally agree. And it is, it is beautiful. It's it such really a good is. moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, can we talk about unmasked Din? I think you referred to him slightly before, but yeah, I think that we need to talk about the unmasking because it's a huge moment that I know everyone was like, not everyone, because I wasn't like this. So I, I was like, the mask is going to be removed by the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And it happened. But I know that there were so many people who were like, no, he has to keep it on. It's part of the creed. We're not going to get the mask until the mask removal until the end of the series, like in total. Mm-hmm. And I think th- that would have been fine. But Pedro Pascal is so cute that I'm so happy that <laughs> we got this reveal. And I think it was like, it was the question on so many people's uh, minds. Was so he going to take off his helmet? My mom asked me every single episode. <laughs> she watched it after me because we would wake up. She would be like, did he take it off? Like, you just have to tell me when he takes it off. <laughs> so, <laughs> I can hear mom asking that. Be like, hello, good morning to the Mandalorian take off his helmet. <laughs> well, I do think that, you know, I... Kate, I think that us like super deep fans are more willing to accept a whole series all about not seeing underneath this mask. I think that's fine because we're familiar with, you know, characters like Boba Fett and masked villains and everything like that. But I do think that there was a certain amount of there was a wall that I think was put up for perhaps a general audience about like, who's under the mask? What are we going to see? Who's under the mask? It was a major question, right? I think it's like, I think we're all just kind of, it's like we're itching to see him take it off. Like, is he, when is he going to do the thing and take it off? Yeah. And I think that it's so often talked about, you know, that that kind of uh, cliche statement of like the eyes of the window to the soul. So it was like, when are we going to see those eyes, right? Because all we've seen is the stoic mask. And we've, we've talked about how excellent Pedro Pascal or whoever was in this costume, because I know that at some points it wasn't Pedro, but he's done a great job of mask acting. And it is a talent and it is a skill. And it's actually quite remarkable that we can get so many emotions from his limited dialogue and his body language. Mm -hmm. But his this reveal, this unmasking, I think it came at a really smart moment of no living being can see him and everything like that. But I think that it's worth discussing where this unmasking fits in between our two probably most notable unmaskings, Darth Vader and Kylo Ren. For me, I would say that this one leans more towards Kylo Ren than Darth Vader, because I think that it, it, for me, and I know this is kind of still debated in fandom, but for me, when Kylo's mask comes off in The Force Awakens, it is, uh, what it reveals is, oh, there's a young man underneath that. And I do think that you're supposed to be like, whoa, he's cute. He's attractive. Um, you even have J.J. Abrams in the commentary being like, he looks kind of like a prince. And I think that's the point of it. He's kneeling, whatever. You've heard us talk about it before. <laughs> no one's new, <laughs> new to this. But I think for Darth Vader, I think it's definitely something similar to that of, oh, it's just a man under there. It's a sad older man. Um, so that's why I think that in, in between those two extremes, it's definitely more towards, oh, it's a, a young man with a whole life ahead of him. And he I, looks scared and bloodied and scarred. I think I think that's interesting. You put it clo- like the unmasking moment you put closer to Kylo because I put it closer to Vader. Because interesting. They are like they're in. I think visually, I think I think you're right. The idea that like oh, it's a young man, but I think like from his voice, I think we all kind of inferred it was a young 
man, which yeah. I guess that could have been proved very wrong. <laughs> but I think I think like how it's shot, it is kind of similar to Vader in the fact mm-hmm. that it's what is presumed to be last moments. And he takes it off and he's like injured and he's hurt and he's he's gonna die. And, and he's leaning against something too. Yeah, yeah. I think like that that physicality of how they're both set up is very similar. And like it's like the end of life tone whereas when kylo takes off his helmet for the first time you're right like it is this oh he's cute um but it's a very it's a power move in that scene it's a very different setting um but i think the comparison you made like the idea that oh it's both like young men and they both have a lot more to give and it does it does kind of exist on its own um just because the mandalorian we see as like a good person and mm-hmm. Vader, when he takes off his mask, he has been redeemed, but we've still only known him as Dark Lord of the Sith. And Kylo and his first unmasking is is very different. Um, he's using it to like try and prove a point, and he ends up failing <laughs> in proving that point. Um, but I mean, that's when he puts his mask down in like the the bowl of ashes of his victims, of his burned <laughs> enemies, or something like that. <laughs> It's like very advanced. <laughs> I remember when we were talking about like the unmasking, we did a lot of comparisons with Vader and Kylo and how the Mandalorian would kind of fit in. And I think I think you're right. It's worthwhile to kind of compare these unmasking moments because they are important moments for all of the characters. And what I think is great about the Mandalorian's uh, unmasking is that it is him in this really vulnerable situation. And I wouldn't even like Kylo, I think looks hot when he takes off his mask. Vader looks sad and the Mandalorian looks cute, but he's also like, I don't think, I don't think Pedro Pascal looks hot in that moment. Like he doesn't look powerful when Kylo takes off his helmet in the force awakens. He looks powerful when Vader takes it off. It's him at his, not at his lowest moment, but in his last moments. And when the Mandalorian takes off his, there is kind of this, like we mentioned earlier, almost like a comedic element to it in that he kind of made a mountain out of a molehill of his injury and is his death of this like relatively minor injury worth not taking off his helmet for? Um, Like what's your pride? (laughs) Your pride, your life is the price of your helmet kind of thing. And when it's just me here and I'm not a living being, I'm a droid. Um, I think, I think it's, it's interesting that it's kind of this, it's meaningful to the audience and it's meaningful to the Mandalorian, but it's also in some ways this small moment and we're not there yet at the big moment because I think, I think like the bigger moment, like we've talked about in kind of far reaching speculation of where this series ends, I think it ends almost like with them not belonging to Force users or to Mandalore, but just being this found family of two and that the Mandalorian takes off his helmet and I like it's only for ever for baby Yoda. Or maybe he does like end up back on Sorghum with that widow or with Kara or with someone else entirely and they have this family and he gives it up. I remember what the widow said and 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 I, I apologize, I can't remember her name. Um, what she says in Sanctuary. Omera. Mara, thank you. Um, when she tells him that he can take it off and like you'll pack that away and only bring it out if you need it. 
and the Mandalorian says, oh my God, it's such a great moment when she goes to take it off and he, she thinks that maybe, like maybe she'll let, he'll let her and he mm-hmm. doesn't because he's not ready yet. And so maybe, maybe he like ends up back on Sorghum. I don't know. But we said that in our episode. Yeah. I still think that that's like the reason why that's episode four is to prove that there's this peaceful sanctuary that exists that he could potentially return to. I think it, not until the threat of the the trackers is fully eliminated. Yeah, and that it's something that he could want too. Right. And I think we see Carr kind of ask that of him or kind of push him a little bit on that. And because the Mandalorian is the man of very few words, I don't think we really see him say that. But the way that he like talks to Omera and the way that he like in that moment in particular when he like he lets her get to the point of like moving his mask and then he takes her hands down i think that i think that says a lot like in his actions and i'm i'm curious about what the next unmasking will be because i don't know if i think that the mandalorians unmasking are of the same narrative weight as kylo's and vader's first unmaskings are um i think it is like in the narrative of his relationship to droids but like at the end of the day, his relationships, I think, to like Kara and maybe grief in the future and baby Yoda are like more important. And so when will that come into play later? I know we also talked about potentially like seeing of the Mandalorian's masking when he was a child being a more significant moment than when he took it off, like when he takes it off for the first time. Because for as much as we think about like Vader taking off his helmet in in Return of the Jedi and Kylo in Force Awakens, Anakin getting that Vader put on in Revenge of the Sith is such a powerful moment. And it would be interesting to see something like that from maybe not a child, maybe he's yeah, like a child's, he does say he was a child when it happened. From a child's perspective, that's 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 interesting. Yeah, and I think that that will, I'm sure, I'm actually sure that we're going to get some sort of flashback for that. Where, uh, like, if baby Yoda has to go through something like that, I don't know. It's so There's so many possibilities, I think, that if Yoda, if the, if the child becomes a Mandalorian, that... There's a lot of parallel moments that they could try to draw between them, including that. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's just there's so much room like this. This story has so many layers built into it from the fact of like who it's created by when it was created, knowing everything that exists around it already. I don't know. It's really interesting. Totally. Wow, I can't wait. (laughs) Me too. I uh, One thing that I forgot to mention that I wanted to is I thought the creatures that were like the pterodactyl creatures, they were like, they were kind of similar to me as like large Minox, but I also think that they were like, they were really similar to dragons. And Mm -hmm. I think it makes sense. We're in this lava pit, lava area where there's dragons. And I think something we've talked about a lot on the show about how dragons do represent the ego and, um, that is brought up in the Revenge of the Sith novelization, and it's a very Campbellian idea of the representation of dragons. And I think it's it's worth mentioning. I know I sound like a broken record when I do bring up Joseph Campbell, but John Favreau has mentioned Joseph Campbell a lot in interviews. So I really do think it's important to bring it up because I think it is, you know, his um, 
his hero's journey is definitely uh, guiding a lot of John's writing for the series. But I definitely think this this moment when um, grief is slashed by the dragon and the dragon takes away one of the blurgs, I think it's this moment of uh, if the dragon does represent the ego, this is grief being hurt by his own ego in thinking that he can um, accomplish this plan, this double crossing. And I I definitely think that's what's going on here. Um, I don't know about you, but it seemed it came out of nowhere to me, <laughs> these these dragon like creatures. Mm-hmm. And I do think that they're supposed to be in a mythical mythological sense representative of like the big bad, the 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 darkness within. Yeah. And it was supposed to be this turning point for grief's character. And it was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's interesting thinking about the hero's journey and where Din will go next because he's not a traditional hero and he's not really even an anti-hero or a Byronic hero, I don't think. It's Mm-mm. it's kind of he's kind of hard to categorize because even from the very beginning, I remember talking about how he had um like he did right by Quill when and thinking like oh, that's kind of weird that he did that. Like he's a bounty hunter, he's he's a Mandalorian like they're known they're like in this time period they're kind of known for their like how rare they are and then also how they're like great warriors and the fact that he like offers to hire Quill and give him a livable wage and um like thanks him and trusts him I remember being really surprised by that and and because he doesn't talk a lot I remember thinking like who is this person what is he ultimately about and what are his motivations in life? And I think maybe that's part of it is that maybe he didn't really have any, you know, and baby Yoda gives him something like this motive, this purpose, and that's going to propel him through this whole journey. And I wonder like, again, cause I don't, he's not like a a quintessential hero. (sighs) when those different sides of him come into friction. I don't know. I'm. It would be really interesting to see what happens next. Yeah, I definitely think that Din is on a hero's journey. I think we're in the middle of it. Um, and I think that maybe it's worth it to kind of go through it and kind of talk it out. I think that we can refer to the cycle that everyone is very familiar with. Um, and I think that if we could start kind of in the beginning of like in chapter one, I think that he does have a sort of call to adventure with, his, with like this literal beacon. The first <laughs> shot of the Mandalorian is a like the the tracking device, which is, I think, fascinating to me because I don't think we really realized how important those tracking beacons would be for the story mm-hmm. until <laughs> until it was uh, revealed to us. Yeah. And that's the literal first shot, you know, and that almost is this compass, you know, that that guides him to the child. And that is his call to adventure. Um, And he's almost and I think that there is a refusal of the call there, too, that you can kind of label when he uh, does it like the the literal call almost of when (laughs) baby Yoda cries when they he after he returns, you know. But yeah. I think that there, all of this is uh, can be kind of either micro or macro, you know, like perhaps in each episode, it has its own sort of journey that's happening as like a tight story, but also yeah. throughout the entire thing, it'll become clear to us, you know? Well, I wonder too, because like, 
you know, if we're looking at the the step by step hero's journey, like, you know, Act One separation, Act Two the ordeal, and Act Three unification, and we go from the ordinary world into the special world, and then back into the ordinary world. Maybe this is like part of it getting weirder. Like, yeah. I can almost see a situation where John Favreau like set up that each season is going to be another part of the hero's journey, and like season mm-hmm. one is Act One. And then if season two is act two where we're entering into the special world, this is when like it gets really weird. And then we come back out into the ordinary world again and, you know, we cross that final threshold and then we're at the end. And this is when they make the decision that they're going to stay together. Uh, it's, it's this, when we were talking about it, I meant to bring it up earlier, but this reminded me, we talked about in the very first episode that, uh, Lone Wolf and Cub was like recommended to watch um, before yeah. Mandalorian came out. And there's this scene that I always think about with Lone Wolf and Cub. Lone Wolf and Cub has this in the first film has this great conversation about like destiny and fate, which is always a conversation in Star Wars and seeing it like play out with this very ordinary Mandalorian for all intents and purposes contrasted with this like otherworldly child who like there no one knows what he is like no one knows that he's a baby yoda mm-hmm. <laughs> and um but there's this scene in lone wolf and cub where the father is he basically has the child choose his destiny you remember this scene yeah and i think it's the scene that stands out the most for me i think in this um in the that film because the father is like about to go on his quest for revenge against his wife that's been murdered and he has this like two-year-old son and he sits his son in front of a play ball and a sword and he lets his two-year-old son crawl to whatever his destiny is and if he chose the ball like the toy, he was going to kill his son so that he could rejoin his mother in the afterlife. And if he chose the sword, then it meant they were on this adventure together. And he chooses the sword. The baby chooses the sword. And the father says, I wish you had chosen the the toy because like I'm on the road to hell, basically. I think that's actually what he – one of the films is called. <laughs> baby cart to hell, I think. <laughs> um, but I remember it stood out so much to me and the, the idea of destiny and that they were going to embark on this adventure together, but they're this incredibly unlikely pair. And even throughout the films, everyone comments and everyone begins to know who they are. They start calling them lone wolf and cub, and people have heard of this assassin who travels around with a child. And um, – the idea that it was this kind of chosen destiny, it was their fate to be on this path together. And I think the father often talks about it that way. Like it, it was our destiny to be on this path of revenge and the road we walk is a lonely one, kind of. It's very verbose and it is very mythic. And I think about that a lot with, with the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda and um, how they have chosen this path. But I don't think, I mean, who knows how, like, what baby Yoda thinks but I don't think the Mandalorian I think this moment at the end of the of redemption when he's with the armorer this is when I think he realizes the path that he has stepped on is going to be a pretty permanent one and I I don't think he I don't really think that settled with him until this moment I think he understands it a lot more now and I think anyone who they get close to in the future I think I, I like I think that'll be a part of the conversation of like like it is my destiny, it is it is my purpose right now to return him to where he comes from. 
And I think that could be a driving force for him in season two. But I think when whenever they get to the end, if there is actually a place to return Baby Yoda to, I think we'll maybe see something similar to like that, what we saw in Lone Wolf and Cub of the child choosing his destiny and his destiny being with the Mandalorian as they move forward and in, into the proverbial sunset. Yeah. And if you can label that on the hero's journey, it's almost like his understanding, this elixir, this mm-hmm. realization that he knows where he's from or it's not there anymore, but he, he has this knowledge, but he still wants to remain with his father, the Mandalorian. And that's him becoming master of two worlds, this understanding that I can use the force and I'm also a Mandalorian. I have these two parts of me. I'm, I'm talking about Baby Yoda now. Um, yeah, I was like, did you see something I didn't with the Mandalorian? No, no, but that, I mean, that would be, I think, really powerful because I think the child is just perhaps is just as much of a main character as the Mandalorian at this point, where you're right, there it will be this aspect of choice involved. Um, and then from there, it's almost like that's their freedom to live, their freedom to live almost as father and son Easily. without the oppression. Yes. So it's it's really, really fascinating. I mean, even you can you can kind of and we might have talked about this. It's been a while now that I haven't revisited it, but in chapter two when they get the egg that can even be kind of discussed as the belly of the whale this like this task or this location that is so difficult to traverse that you need help to get out of it and baby yoda of course is that you know yeah and it even is like it is almost this this womb we talked about it as a womb but it 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 is almost this this belly this internal place that he has to go in to seek this object um yeah caves man (laughs) every time it's in star wars i'm like caves on high high alert yeah (laughs) it's true it's true i just think this is definitely something that we need to keep our eye on not that we aren't because this is how our brain works but i (laughs) i think that something that i do really i really like that the mandalorian and john favreau and dave filoni are very cognizant of this like story tradition of telling the monomyth um and they're very open and have been since the beginning of discussing what that means and that that like cultural footprint within Star Wars. And it's very important, I think, that um, – I mean, it's, it's not. It's not very important. You, not every story has to follow it. But it is nice to have this, this mythic understanding of um, an arc that our characters are on. Yeah, it just – it feels – I don't know. I think that's, I think that's what they wanted. Yeah. I think the again going back to like calling it chapters. I I feel like I'm like putting a lot of importance on this, <laughs> on just calling it chapters. But I think that says a lot for how they were conceptualizing these stories. And there's a connotation that comes with the word chapter that doesn't mm-hmm. come with just an episode title. And yeah. I think that's I think that's worth thinking about, especially when we're thinking about like traditional storytelling and things like the monomyth and the hero's journey that has like steps to it and the good thing about like star wars and and the storytellers that we have in john favreau and in dave filoni is that they're well versed in both kinds of storytelling and like thinking outside the box while also respecting and maintaining not status quo but like what's come before and i think that the way that they have it set up as a storybook in a way gives them gives them a structure but then they're both creative enough to 
color outside the lines. And I think that's going to make it when we, when we're like, when we're able to see this three, four season story all together, I think it'll be really special. It will. It'll be one of those things you can put on the shelf, Caitlin. Put it on the shelf. And we love that because this is like a book, like you said, (laughs) putting it on the shelf. (laughs) A storybook. And maybe if it ever comes out on DVD, it'll say like volume one. Oh my God, that would be so great. And then, man, like chapter, and there'll be like a table of content. (laughs) I want someone to design like a storybook of The Mandalorian. Like a like a like a children's storybook of like chapter one, the Mandalorian. It's just like a little picture of what he did. And chapter <laughs> two, and there's like a table of contents at the beginning. You know, I think that would sell really well. <laughs> I agree. And you're you're an artist, so I think I think you wow. should. I think you should. You are. You are. Charlotte did this great drawing of the Mandalorian's helmet. Um, back was it right before Rise of Skywalker came out, or right? Was it in uh, yeah, November? Right before, right before. Yeah, it yeah. was really good. It's on our Instagram. You guys should go check it out. But Charlotte is very skilled and she doesn't show it off enough. So I think you should draw us all a Mandalorian storybook. Oh my God, that would be quite the project. Yeah, and then you could put it on your own shelf though. I mean, wow, talk about full Oh, meta. <laughs> <laughs> Actually though. Yeah, so I think I think you should. <laughs> okay, all right, done. <laughs> I think that just I I feel like I have to mention this, but another popular show that has chapters that was very uh, prominent about advertising that they are, each episode is a chapter is Stranger Things. And Stranger mm-hmm. Things is modeled after Stephen King novels, Goosebump novels, and that's the whole branding behind it. And the whole idea that it is a chapter in a volume of stories, I think really does... I mention it because I think it aids your point about it being a storybook. And I think that Stranger Things kind of fills that like sci-fi horror genre of like late 80s, early 90s. But I I think that in a way, The Mandalorian is kind of trying to do that as well, you know, mm-hmm. trying to fit into that. I think that, yes, it goes down the fairy tale pathway, but it also has this like grunginess sort of um, – the Star Wars era that everyone refers to, right? The original trilogy era of um, the the, what trilogy. was being produced then. Yes. The first trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> One day <laughs> we'll all call it correctly how George Lucas wanted George, it. George wants it. George wants it to be the first trilogy, the second trilogy, and the third trilogy. And then he I guess does. the first show, the second show, the third show and the fourth show, I guess that. <laughs> I wonder how how he talks about about the TV shows now. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Probably just by title. Yeah, probably. probably. We can stick with titles for the TV shows, but one day we'll be better about calling all the trilogies how George calls them, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is actually important because I think it takes away some of the connotations and prejudices against various trilogies too. So Yeah, you're right. You're right. But that's just me. Is there anything else we need to talk about? I I feel like we covered so much, but also nothing. I <laughs> I I don't even know. <laughs> There's so much. We're going to be talking about the Mandalorian for a while. It's going to come up in our theme discussions yeah. because it is so rich. So this isn't it, but I do feel like we had a lot to say, Caitlin. Come on. Yeah. Oh, I I know we're what? 2 and a half hours in. Yeah, yeah we definitely had a lot 
to say. The time went really fast. It did. It did. It's we, yeah, this wasn't, I I know our Mandalorian episodes weren't necessarily structured. They were kind of more of a free for all, but we did try to kind of follow the timeline of the show of the episode. This one though was a little bit more all over the place, but uh, like I said, I think it was good waiting like we did to cover it. Um, Even though it probably was a little longer than we anticipated, I still think it was worthwhile to take the time that we did and to be able to binge watch it all together. I know it was incredibly beneficial for me. And it just, it, I don't know. It was just like a really nice way to spend the weekend and coming fresh off of Clone Wars season seven, episode one. I just, it makes me really excited um, about Star Wars, honestly. And I definitely needed that in 2020 and getting to, live in these places in these storytelling places with Clone Wars and the Mandalorian the past week has been like really uplifting for my Star Wars heart and it just the Mandalorian is such a good story and it's structured so well and the things that it's doing really hit on all the high points of what Star Wars is as far as like don't be afraid to be cute have like a kind of ambiguous moral character, mm-hmm. use super innovative technology. Um, Joseph Campbell. <laughs> Darksaber? <laughs> Darksaber. Like, we've got our animation. Um, we've got our force healing with the third trilogy. We've got our grittiness of the first of trilogy. We've got our Mandalorian history from the third trilogy. Second trilogy. Oh, that's confusing. Um <laughs> I'll get there, guys. <laughs> but it really it really does hit on all these high points. And I think, like you said, it, at the very top of the show, it's just it's really nice. It's really great to have something that, for the most part, it seems like everyone loves. Yeah. And everyone is – the conversation seems to be pretty resoundingly positive. And that's just – there's a reason why, and that's because it's really good. Yeah. So many people were asking me about the Darksaber after that episode. It felt so exciting to discuss animation. And I mean, that reveal feels like it was really made for us. Like there's there's several moments, I think, in my Star Wars life where I felt that way. I felt so like recognized and heard. And um, Rogue One was definitely one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is a Star Wars movie for me Mm -hmm. Um, in the movie theater. That's how I felt. And then I think the Darksaber was one of those two where it was so exciting to tell my parents about the Darksaber. <laughs> and I was like, this is so cool. Like, you don't understand. And they, they actually did understand. Like, that's what's so cool, you know? Yeah. And I had to tell so many of my friends about it. And I was like, you, you don't understand. Like, this is going to come up later. And we're going to get a great story out of this because the stories that we've gotten with it already are so great that I can't wait for them to explain it in in live action and and man it looked so cool (laughs) that was shocking yeah yeah it really was you i know you you couldn't watch it right when it aired because you were away for the holidays and uh, i was spoiled you were spoiled spoiled on the dark saber and i was so sad that you were spoiled i remember texting you because we were um we were talking about it and you're like i've been spoiled like don't go online and I remember I got to the end of the episode and I was like, oh, no, is this what you were spoiled on? Like, tell me yeah. what you were spoiled on. And you told me it was the dark saber. I was like, oh, man, because <laughs> when that thing popped out, I screamed. Yeah. <laughs> I was so shocked. <laughs> um, to be honest, we were – I think – I was spoiled on Twitter, but we were also getting a lot of ads of like on Twitter being like, have you guys watched it? Oh, my yeah. God. Looked at the animation department for the future of Star Wars. And I yeah. love those. And I'm, I never want to 
like I love that people are like, oh my God, like I can't wait to see what uh, Charlotte thinks of this, you know? So I am not going to say that I am disappointed that I was spoiled because I'm I'm really not. I, I didn't know the context and I was surprised that Moff Gideon had it, honestly. Yeah, yeah. That's- and I, I wasn't even really thinking about it during the episode either, which I know sometimes that can like, when you know something that's coming, mm-hmm. um, it can kind of change your perception. But this this episode just like had so much going for it that I actually forgot until then. So it was great. Yeah. It was fine. Oh, man. Well, the good thing is, is that now that we're finally covering it, we have less time until season two when we're talking about it again on the Sky Talkers feed. So yes. I guess there's that bright side to waiting longer to record about it. Yeah. But I I think that's going to wrap up this current discussion of The Mandalorian because like Charlotte said, we'll definitely be talking about it more and hopefully there'll be more behind the scenes content coming out from it in the future now that season one is really, really wrapped up two months ago. Hopefully we'll be seeing some more coming from it and here's some more about it too at Celebration in August as well as season two that will be coming out very shortly afterwards. So I think that is going to wrap up this episode about The Mandalorian. I hope you guys enjoyed it belatedly. Have any of you binged it all the way through since it's come out? Have your opinions on things changed at all? Have you just fallen more in love with it? Please let us know. You can find us online on Twitter at SkyTalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarities. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, an Instagram, Facebook, email. Our email is SkyTalkersPodcast at gmail.com. Please email us whenever you want add us whenever you want find us where you get your social media (laughs) preferred (laughs) and uh, if you enjoyed this episode you can leave us a review on itunes we would love it so so much we have a lot of exciting things coming down the line we are currently um, discussing clone wars which is super exciting which is another dave filoni project if you haven't watched any of the animated shows but have loved the mandalorian a big piece of the mandalorian is dave filoni and he is in charge of the clone wars so if you've never given clone wars a chance now is the perfect time to hop in and we're covering it on sky talkers too so you can check out those episodes and like i said give us a review on itunes it helps other people find our show and join the conversation and uh, if you want other ways to support us you can also check out our patreon where we have different reward tiers if you're interested in that Yes, absolutely. And I want to shout out our very awesome patrons today. Alyssa, Jessica, Heidi, Emily, Jordan, Timothy, Mary, John, Vundacast Productions, Alex W., Joey, and Jason. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Sky Talkers is a member of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network. Explore more great content and get to know our sister shows at WeAreEscapePods.com and on Twitter at WeAreEscapePods. The Star Wars Escape Pods Network, promoting positivity in fandom.